Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. It's been a little while. Yeah. I'm David, if you don't remember. <laughs> I want to say Trevor. <laughs> Uh, I'm Tyler. You are really that great line from Clifford. Uh, I want to say Mason. Yeah, yeah. I love kids. I have a nephew. I want to say Mason. Um, yeah. Uh, who's to, by whom is this episode brought to our listeners? There we go. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Miniflix, a premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, and many more, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else on online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. Now, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. This week, you'll find an article about uh, this year's Oscar winners for a live-action short, animated short, and documentary short subject, and what they are planning to do next. So, to check out these and other articles, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. All right. Um, let's just get started. Um, we have lots of movies to get to. Yeah. I'm going to start. So you're going to uh, see a theme with the both of us here uh, um, of end of 2018 catch up before we recorded our top yeah. 10 episode. Um, so now you'll get to hear which movies I watched that didn't make the cut. In some cases, didn't even come close mm-hmm. to making the cut. Case in point, Jason Reitman is the front runner. Okay. Um, and it's not that it's a bad movie necessarily it just seems uh not very willing to go too deep i think Mm -hmm. on the one hand i like the idea because if you don't know if people have forgotten because this movie did (laughs) this is uh do you know there's a there's a podcast called like it's called like this had oscar buzz and it looks at movies that like had oscar buzz and then came out and flopped or, or fizzled out the front runner would be a perfect one for that. Oh, sure. Uh, um, they even had the gall to call it the front runner. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so it's about the Gary Hart campaign specifically. It takes place almost exclusively within three weeks of the Gary Hart campaign in 1988. Am I 88 sounds right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart. He's actually really good. Uh, that shouldn't be as, I, I continue to be surprised when Hugh Jackman is good, even though he's usually good. Yeah. Uh, I, I find him. It's, he's one of those guys that I've loved for a long time. And I think because people see him as Wolverine first and foremost, which is understandable. Um, I think that they, he just isn't talked about very much, but yeah. you know, I know you don't really care for the prestige. I think he's great in the prestige. I think he's, you know, as charismatic, as charismatic as he needs to be in something like, greatest showman he is very good as wolverine i really liked his jean valjean like he's a incredibly reliable actor uh and yet whenever he's not i don't know if i'd say he's a full-blown movie star i mean everybody knows who he is but he hasn't i don't know if he's quite hugh jackman yeah do you think he's a a full-blown movie star yeah like when i feel like he's a second tier movie star huh I think of him as an A-lister. Okay, this—that's not like that is not a strike. He's like against friends him or with anything. Oprah, right? Is he friends with Oprah? I think so. Okay, well, all right, that's that's up there. <laughs> yeah, like when I think um, top tier, I think of like your your Denzel, Bra- your Brad's Pitt, your okay. George's Clooney, Denzel, Denzel, Julia Roberts, Julia Roberts, Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep, uh, Sandra Bullock, probably. Okay, um, and then second tier uh i'm not sure exactly but i feel like like when like among that list 
Would you put Hugh Jackman in there? I guess that is, you're talking about real heavy hitters. There. Yeah. But I feel like Hugh Jackman is as much a movie star as Ben Affleck or Kate Blanchett is, right? I think it's arguable if Kate Blanchett is actually a movie star. She is to us. I think she's a movie star. I don't know. Yeah, so, you're anyway. right. You know what? I don't know anything. Yeah. Um, but I was talking to my mom on the phone on the way over here. We are already off topic. Yeah. We have a lot of and, stuff to yeah. get to. <laughs> and she was telling me a story about the Oscar party that she went to uh, in Boise, Idaho. And it just made me realize how much of a, like, you know, the whole Pauline Kael, no one I know voted for oh, yeah. Nixon thing, like how much of a bubble we are in when it comes to movies. Mm. So they're watching the Oscars at this Oscar party and the, this, this woman, mom doesn't really know her. She's a friend of the, another friend of the people who are hosting the party. And she was like, and she said, uh, you know, I heard, th- I didn't see Roma. I heard it was on Netflix, but I went to find it and all I could find was the Spanish version. And my mom was like, well, it's a, it's a Mexican movie. It's in Spanish with English subtitles. And I said, Oh, I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> I, that's one of those things that I guess I should have understood that people have that attitude, yeah. but I don't know anyone who thinks like that. Uh, I mean, my students in my world cinema class, I mean, it's world cinema. So yeah, what do they think if, they're getting if it into? wasn't silent, then it's, it's subtitled. Yeah. And that's the thing is I think I think some of it has to do with just the way people communicate about movies. So like every week I have my students write uh, just a a one page reaction, just a personal reaction to the film that we just watched. And the reactions have been largely almost unanimously positive about stuff like um, late spring and, and uh, Potemkin and that sort of thing. Uh, so they like what they're seeing, but the way they phrase it there, it's, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, okay, I think I might need to adjust my expectations of how they're going to say things. Like it's like, it was really good, even though it was black and white, even though Wait, how old are these, they're like a college freshman. And so in the same way that like, uh, I guess they just let anybody into college these days, <laughs> community college. Yeah. And they let just about anybody teach there as well. Um, and then it's also the idea that like, uh, you know, bicycle thieves has, I would say, a, a, a downbeat ending. Uh-huh. Um, that's how you and I would say that. Yeah. Whereas kids that maybe are not movie literate, uh, they just say the ending sucked. Now, you and I, if if I said, oh, I saw a movie and the ending sucked, you know that I mean it was not done well. Right. In this case, they mean it, it didn't sucked make me for happy. Them. It sucked oh, right. for them. Yeah. It sucked for the characters and it didn't make me happy. But they don't they don't strike it against the film there. So it's just like the way they phrase it and just the expectations that like film, I think, is and movies are so first and foremost entertaining that anything that doesn't fit within, I would say the pretty narrow parameters of entertainment, foreign, black and white downbeat ending, uh-huh. uh, is something that like, even if a person is being positive about it, they're sort of making a concession. Like it's good despite this, you know, it's like, I was surprised how much I, I liked it despite all of these obvious flaws. <laughs> um, and so wow. in that, in that way, I just, I think there's such an assumption that like, it's like, Oh, it's a Mexican film. Like, Oh, I'm not doing that. Like, 
why would I want to do something like movies are meant to be entertaining that is, there's nothing entertaining about that. Did she, did, did, did this woman even know it was in black and white? That's uh, yeah, another she, strike. I don't know if she ever got that far. That's yeah. strike two. Uh, so, all right. We got to get back on track. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We haven't the, talked the, about a single movie. Runner. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but I was saying, um, Hugh Jackman's very good. He plays Gary Hart as a guy who believes. So he believes so firmly kind of like what we were just talking about being in a bubble. He believes so firmly that a person's private life has nothing to do with their politics that he sort of refuses to let it sink in that his private life is ruining his chances. So he's a guy who's, you wouldn't say it like deluded. He's just like, he's like, coming around to the reality of the situation like a boat turning like yeah. like a big ship turning you know it's it's too slow um but what i didn't expect when i found uh one of the better things in the movie is that it's truly an ensemble mm-hmm. it's it's not the huge Hugh jackman as gary hart biopic right it's just as much about his campaign staff and the reporters at the miami herald who broke the story and the reporters at the washington post um who uh you know being hit the Paper, you know, it, it took place in the affair or whatever it was in DC, I guess. So that's right. the hometown paper or whatever. The, the, you see a lot of reporters, but the two main teams you see are Miami Herald, uh, where Bill Burr plays a reporter and he's great, <laughs> uh, and the Washington Post, um, where Alfred Molina plays Ben Bradley. So hey, we got right. Jason Robards, Tom Hanks, and Alfred Molina yeah. have all played Ben Bradley. Heavy and, hitters. And then uh, John Slattery played Ben Bradley Jr. Oh, yeah, that's right. So. Um, and then, uh, what, was, what else was I going to say? Uh, oh, and then you've also got a f- fair amount of time, but not, maybe it could have been more with, uh, Donna. Well, I forget her name. The woman he had the right. affair with, who's played by Sarah Paxton, uh, who's an actress that I like. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I, but I, I, I'm of two minds about it. Like, I like that it's an ensemble, but I also feel like it, feels a little like it might have spread itself too mm. too thin um to the point where when it has a point to make it kind of ends up just stuffing the point in the character's mouths yeah you know like and, and if you're gonna do that get jk simmons because he sure. can sell stuff but when he's when jk simmons he's the one who's talking about like he's sort of the world weary one who's like it didn't used to be like this when you were covering politics. It didn't used to be this tabloid stuff and now it is. And now I guess we have to get used to that. I'm not sure that I agree with that, but that's kind of the point. The idea of the movie, uh, is that the Gary Hart campaign and the Gary Hart scandal sort of represents a turning point. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but the idea that, uh, because I mean, you see even in going to the post, yeah, you see the way that the Washington post reporters and like the Kennedys were, friends and they would kind of yeah. like sweep stuff under the rug and i guess the movie's idea is that well that used to happen all the time for you know affairs and what would yeah. be considered private matters and it's maybe a little bit weird that the movie is looking at that wistfully perhaps uh, <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's interesting um i was listening when the years ago i was years ago sorry months ago uh, i was listening to uh, a conservative commentator and he was discussing the front runner and he said one of the best things about it is that it's not a hundred percent clear like it talked like when you we are so embroiled in like the personal lives of all politicians and probably all people at this point mm-hmm. um that it's just like oh it sure would be nice to just like have them talk about the issues and not address anything from their personal life. But at the same, so it's just like on one hand there's that, but then it's just like, yeah, but in doing so, 
a lot of ba- a lot of genuinely bad stuff that might reveal. Uh, this is a thing I say very very uh, cautiously, but like you do want to have an idea of like the character of a person, like a, like a John Edwards, for example, was someone who uh, I, you yeah, know but was I, revealed I, to be kind of a kind of a scumbag in some yeah, ways. Yeah, definitely. But also, I think I draw kind of a hard line. Like, I don't think that a person's ability to govern and their ability to be a faithful wife or husband. Right. The, the <laughs> issue comes with, like, the issue gets blurred with, like, the the Clinton thing where it's like, I'm now tell like, I did this personal thing and that I, that, yes, might be a failing, but it's not a failing, it's not a policy failing, but, like, but now I'm telling, now there's, like, a cover-up and so it's like, okay, is the cover right. up or more recently the Stormy Daniels thing is like yeah, that yeah. too. Like I yeah, I personally don't give a fuck if Donald Trump cheated on Melania Trump. Yeah. I don't care. I'll, well, I'll just kind of assumed he did. <laughs> yeah, but then the, if he broke the law in covering okay. it up, that's obviously something that uh should be looked into. Yeah. And maybe uh, there was a time maybe maybe we should all be wistful for a time when it's just like there was no need to cover it up because nobody cared. Yeah. So uh, yeah. it could be swept under the car- car- carpet more easily. Um, uh, should I see the front runner? Because I do like campaign movies. Uh, uh, if you like campaign movies, maybe, yeah, maybe you, you'll like it. It's got, uh, yeah, it's got a really good cast. There's people I haven't even mentioned. Uh, um, uh, I'm forgetting who else is in it. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. Okay. Um, and Bill Burr is uh, in it and he's always good. <laughs> All right. Um, next, oh, we, we also said off before we started recording, a number of these are going to be movies that we talked about sort of at more length on our recent, like through the cracks and or not through the cracks, but our top 10 yeah. episode. So we might just sort of breeze by some of these yeah. case in point. I watched the battle of Buster Scruggs. We talked about this yeah. at some length, uh, but I really liked it. Yeah. Good stuff. You can find us talking about it. It was on your top 10, right? It was. Yeah. So yeah. If, yeah, I find on the top 10 episode. Uh, all right. So, this was a uh, there's going to be an interesting blend the movies that I watched um, of 2019 movies I'm interested in uh, classic films for one class and then kids films for my middle schoolers and then catching up on 2018 so uh, I watched <coughs> Hoodwinked which I have not seen in a very long time it's an animated film that is sort of the the tale of Little Red Riding Hood. What year did it come out? Two thousand five. Okay, yeah. so you see, you haven't seen it in a very long time. I mean, I think I saw it like when it was. Uh, yeah, on I guess video what I'm saying is it's not that long. It, uh, there's no. It's not possible for you to have not have seen it that long. Ago. Fair enough. Uh, but I guess we're old now, and yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Who can remember? Yeah, I mean, I'm 37 now, as of a few days. Oh ago. God, yeah. I, I, Natalie reminded me. On the drive over, I was talking on the phone. She said, say happy birthday to Tyler. I fucking forgot. That's happy right. birthday, Tyler. You said a very nice happy birthday on Twitter, and that's fine. Um, um, wait, uh, but I, I was listening to, again, the best show, like usual, and a caller, they were talking about Radiohead, and a caller was like, oh, I, I don't really listen. She was like, I listened to In Rainbows a lot when I was like a freshman in high school. And I was like, Oof. Like, yeah. I was a... I had been graduated from college for years and already moved to Los Angeles before in rainbows came yeah. out. And, uh, yeah. well, and in, in being a teacher talking about movies, you know, for us, I think we've had this conversation already. Harry Potter? Be, uh, oh, I don't know how to write Harry oh. Potter in general. We had this conversation. Yeah. For us, Harry Potter was like, it's a thing that 
started when we were in college and it was a thing that, yeah, we watched it as it was coming out and it was fun, but there are kids for whom they were growing up along with the characters and it's just like, Oh yeah, I guess that would be a very, and I almost envy them that experience. Yeah. Um, I don't think I had anything quite like that uh, when I was a kid, but anyway, okay. So hoodwinked (laughs) is, uh, and as I was, it's, it's essentially the story of little red riding hood by way of Rashomon. Um, where it takes the four main characters, which is Red, the wolf, the grandmother, and the woodsman, and it deconstructs the story from like all these different point of views, uh, points of view, and and you discover that uh, the story that we know is just when all these things crash together and and uh, are simplified, and. Uh, it's written and directed by Corey Edwards, who, as I was watching, I was like, Corey Edwards, that name's familiar. Why do I know that name? Oh, I know him. That's right. <laughs> he was on more than one lesson many years ago. Um, uh-huh. and it is, you know, uh, it's very low budget and you can tell with the animation, it is not great animation, but they had a really good voice cast, including Anne Hathaway, Glenn Close, uh, Patrick Warburton, um, uh-huh. I think David Ogden steers and it was just oh, rest so in like, peace. Oh, did he pass away? They're pretty sure David Ogden oh, okay. passed away. Um, Jim Belushi, Jim Belushi, Anderson, yeah. Exhibit, Chaz Palminteri, Andy Dick. Yeah. Ken Marino, Tom Kenny. Good stuff. It goes on like that. Yes. Uh, and the music is, the music is pretty good. The voice cast is good. And I do think that just the structure of the screenplay is so <clears throat> solid because a big part of of screenwriting, not that I'm a screenwriting teacher, but I, I, I do some script consulting uh, on the side. And something that I've come to really appreciate is the idea that, like, if something is happening in a movie or in a script, ideally, somebody caused it. Somebody did something. It doesn't have to be your lead. It could be a supporting character. And... As you're watching uh, Hoodwinked, like there's a moment when these characters have to like get down a mountain very quickly because there's an avalanche, and you're just like, "Oh man, that's unfortunate." And then you see somebody mm. else's story, and they cause the avalanche. And so by the end of it, like everything in the film it, it happened as a function of a, of somebody making a choice. Uh, it could be a right choice or a wrong choice, but nonetheless it's still very satisfying to watch it is actually as far as like kids movies uh i think that it's pretty solid hmm. um and, and pretty well written anyway um shifting gears and not to talk very much about it um barry jenkins if beale street could talk yeah um, was on my top 10 so, yeah yeah we talked and about uh and i i liked it quite a bit didn't quite love it but there's a lot of things I, I absolutely loved about it. I'd say first and foremost, the acting, but I also adore the music. Um, and, uh, yeah, we can move on. All right. Uh, moving into 2019 for, for a moment, at least, um, uh, isn't it romantic? I saw, oh, which is a movie right. that I wanted to see. The director made the final girls, which is a movie that I mm-hmm. thought was pretty good. Um, but I think it's a number, a, a couple of things in conjunction here. One, I've never been a Rebel Wilson fan. I, Neither I have I. I keep I, trying, but yeah, it doesn't I, work for me. Yeah, she she seems like the f- the funniest person at a party because she knows all the lines from whatever funny, you know, from Anchorman <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know if she's actually funny yeah. is, the, is the thing. She's like 
decent at mimicking or, or, you know, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for. I guess mimicking the, the rhythms, the cadence. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of comedy, but I don't, I've never actually found her funny. Yeah. And the other thing is, this is a parody of romantic comedies and you know, it's been six years since they came together, but yeah. they came together is perfect. Mm-hmm. It is the perfect romantic comedy parody. Uh, and you're not going to say anything that that one didn't. And so I, I kept finding myself comparing it to, 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 they came together. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that really stuck with me, uh, or really st- stood out uh, as, as laziness, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's true to say that in order to properly parody something, you have to actually love it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think I, I, I don't get the impression that the people who made isn't a romantic really love romantic comedies. And I'll tell you why it's because early on before the big change, you know, the premise, she gets bonked in the head and she wakes up in a romantic comedy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But before that, there's a part where she's, she has a coworker who loves romantic comedies and she goes on this long monologue explaining all the reasons she doesn't like romantic comedies, which to me is a way of not trusting the audience Right. By saying, here's all the things about romantic comedies that you were, you're going to spend the next hour making fun of mm-hmm. just so you recognize them now. Yeah. Um, which they came together. doesn't have to do because it trusts that you've seen enough of the movies that you recognize what they're, what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. But they don't literally say like, Oh, everyone has a big, you know, apartment they can't afford or a more glamorous job than they would have yeah. or a gay best friend who has no interest, but their own, like they don't, they're, they're not willing to just bring those elements into the story. They have to have Rebel Wilson tell you everything that you're about to see. Mm. And that felt like a cheat. It felt lazy. And it gave me the impression that they don't actually, the the people who wrote and directed the movie don't actually love romantic comedies as much right. as uh, as much as they needed to to make this good. Uh, also, a big part of the structure of the movie is based directly on my best friend's wedding, which to me, if you're going to make fun of romantic comedies, don't take shots at one of the giants of the game. Yeah, my best friend's wedding is one of the best romantic comedies of all time, mm-hmm. uh, and if you're not going to really bring it. Basing a movie on my best friend's wedding is going to cause me to spend an hour and 40 minutes going, I should watch my best friend's wedding. <laughs> it's been a while yeah. since I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, so that's his romantic. Um, next up, also not romantic, I watched uh, David McKenzie's Outlaw King. That's right. And, uh, this, yeah. this was your go-to for the last like two or three weeks of... I need to catch up on 2018, even movies I can absolutely guarantee <laughs> will not be in my, uh, in my top 10 or anywhere near. Yeah. And this was, and it's also nowhere near my bottom 10. Mm-hmm. A King is just a, such a middle of the road movie in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I've liked David McKenzie, even when he makes middle of the road movies, like, um, um, I think it was released here as tonight. You're mine. The British title, was something else that I always forget. Um, but even that like has a lot of verve and life to it. But let me make stuff like young Adam and start up and, mm-hmm. and hell or high water. Like this guy can make a good movie and outlaw King isn't boring. Yeah. Um, but it also just seems like 
it's just it just seems like a series of events i never feel like i understand things like motivation or depth or um or character it's just a series of events and it also feels like do you know uh like when a a a city like a municipal department right Mm -hmm. it's during the third third quarter financial quarter or the fourth financial quarter and they realize they have a budget surplus for the year, mm-hmm. but if they don't spend all their budget, oh yeah, they don't get yeah, the yeah. same budget next year. <laughs> yeah. I feel like whatever post house they used had a budget had a surplus of CGI carnage mm-hmm. because the one thing that isn't a snooze or a middle of the road snooze about Outlaw King, and the thing that I almost feel bad saying it because I feel like there are certain people that are going to now seek it out because of this. Right, it's. So so bloody mm-hmm. it's incredibly violent and i kept every time a battle would break out i'd be like why <laughs> why are we doing it? like it's uh, it's like someone at the at the post house really really like cracked the code on how to convincingly fake impaling a horse mm-hmm. and they were just like oh we are going to town on this <laughs> uh it's so many so many fake horses get they looks i mean they look real the, the sure. cg is really good but so many horses get impaled so many people get they don't you don't just they don't just like slashed <laughs> they get like impaled like or stabbed directly through the throat or like they get their eyeballs like removed or like uh, their skulls crushed in or like it's uh it, it's insanely bl- bloody there's oh yeah there's a a guy who a guy gets strung up and gutted by the by Ed, by uh, Edward the uh, Second, I think when he's still Prince Edward the Second, not yet mm-hmm. King Edward the Second. Yeah, yeah, King Edward the First is played by Stephen Delane. Oh, all right, uh, and, and he's good. Um, but yeah, I, I just uh, it's it's really bloody, <laughs> and uh, I I'm, I understand that there are people who now want to see it more than they did because of, I said it's very bloody. Uh, I can't help those people. <laughs> um, There's no help for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's not, it's probably not worth your time. Okay. All right. You've got two to do right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, uh, this is a rewatch and I don't really have that much to say about it, except that it's a masterpiece, which is Vittorio De Sica's bicycle thieves. Oh, um, so of course we watched this in my world cinema class talking about Italian neorealism and I, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I absolutely adore it. Um, I love how it's a very small story. It's it's a story that one could say is, is made in a very gritty way. And yet it has, it has flow to it. Like at no point does it feel in my opinion, at no point does it feel slow or anything like that. It just, things move along and there, there are moments of intense frustration. Like there, there's a moment when, um, the main character, uh, has told his friend about his bike being stolen. And so they're like, Oh, well let's go down to this little marketplace and we'll split up and you look for the frame and you look for the tires and you look for all this. And as I'm, as I'm watching it, part of me, it's, it's a, it's a section of the film that I often forget about. Um, but as I'm watching, I was like, you, wait, you're going to keep an eye out for the tires? They're bike tires. What are you talking about? Like, you're not going to, you're, you know, the, the friend's plan is dumb. And then I had the, and then you have the thought is like, well, what else are they going to do? Hmm. Like the police aren't going to be helpful. Uh, these guys are on their own and this is kind of the best they can do. And so it's the frustration that I feel is, is the frustration that they themselves must also feel, but they are trapped by it. 
because when you are living in poverty, you only have so many options available available to you, and none of them are good, and they probably aren't going to help you that much, but you have to do something. And so that really comes through, uh, and the increasing frustration and sadness and desperation uh, in the main actor's performance uh, is just heartbreaking, and his... <laughs> His son, I recognize, is not young Bruno Kirby. I recognize that. <laughs> but you put a mustache on that kid, and it's Bruno Kirby. And he is... By the way, young Bruno Kirby will be coming up later in the movie. Really? In the, oh, that's in the movie fun. journal. Yeah. Uh, and so it's... Uh, their, their relationship rings very true to me. And I just... Uh, yeah, every time I watch Bicycle Thieves, which at this point has been probably like uh, six or seven times, um, I always think of something new. It's not necessarily, not necessarily that I notice something new because the film is done in kind of a bare bones way. It's not like the frame is packed with details. That's the big point. That's part of the point of how it was made, but it gets, it often gets me thinking of something new, uh, based on the character's situation and their relationship to each other. So, uh, okay. Uh, here comes another movie that we did talk about. Oh, okay. It was in my top 10. I like it this. is going to make, Good time. I know it's uh, it was uh, uh, Bing Lu's uh, Minding the Gap, yeah. Which uh, just briefly, it's it, I, I'm bummed that it did not win Best Documentary. I know that it wasn't really going to, but and Free Solo is a perfectly fine film, but Minding the Gap is just this m- nice little miracle of a film where everything lines up just right, um, and that the director just instinctively knows how best to portray to to cut his footage together um so that you come away certainly frustrated and condemning of people's actions and of the 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 circumstances in which people feel that they need to do these often horrendous things to one another uh but i feel like the film actually does not it judges its characters of course and yet somehow it doesn't feel judgmental. It mo- it's more of like it, it laments uh, that these care that these, that these people are doing this stuff. Um, the fact that the character, I keep saying character that the guy Zach, uh, that you come away angry at him and frustrated with him. But at the same time, part of me is just like, I just want him to do better. You know what I mean? Like, sure, yeah. Whereas if, if, if uh, an acquaintance of mine, if I found out that he was doing to his, his wife or girlfriend what Zach was doing, I would just be like, oh, he's, like, he makes me so angry. Like, I know that he is capable of better. And so along those lines, the film really makes you feel like these are your friends that mm-hmm. you're watching or people yeah. that, at least people you know. And that's, that's, like I said, it's a minor miracle of a film. And I, it's a really, uh, thoroughly engaging uh you should read you should read and the listeners should read uh at the paris review blog i had to look it up a uh very uh upsetting but very beautiful personal essay written by a guy named david michael which okay. is called my eye because that's my first yeah. and middle name that's right <laughs> um uh his, his who's also um from Rockford, Illinois, and his uh, experiences watching Mining the Gap and what it brought up for him is a really great uh, hmm. essay. You should check it out at the Parish Review blog. Okay, next up for me is a movie that is being released in uh, in the U.S. in April. 
under the boring title A Dark Place. Okay. Um, it's an original title, and still its letterbox title, I guess, is Steel Country. Um, it takes place in rural Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Steel Country, yeah. I guess. Uh, and it's about... This is going to sound... I had the same experience telling Natalie about the movie. It's going to sound it's not good. Mm-hmm. It's about a sort of mentally underdeveloped uh, garbage truck driver. Okay. Um, played by the, the actor, an actor named Andrew Scott. Do you know? He's a British actor. I know him because he's Moriarty on the PBS Sherlock, but I can't remember if you watched... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. <clears throat> um, he was also in John Adams. But yeah, he's a very charismatic... Yeah actor who's i think he's like 90 percent eyes yeah 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 uh so uh, in this small town a boy is found um drowned in the the river the creek or whatever and the uh the the house that this boy lived in is on this truck driver, garbage truck driver's route mm-hmm. and he gives his condolences to the mother and the mother says something that implies to him that this wasn't a simple drowning. Right. That it was, this wasn't an accidental death. And, uh, so this guy feels compelled to ask more questions. Uh, and so, yes, it sounds like Forrest Gump PI. <laughs> that, that's, that's what it sounds like I'm describing. Okay. But it is, uh, man, why couldn't they call it that? <laughs> I guess there's legal issues. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a much more cathartic uh, movie than that. That is much that that is really has a lot of compassion for its characters, including its main character. Because the more that the more the the more that he uncovered about what happened to this boy, the more we realize things that are not made plain. But the more we start to come to realize about this character's childhood, mm-hmm. that you know maybe his you know, the things that are affecting him mentally aren't just when he wasn't born with these things, maybe something happened to mm-hmm. him. Um, and so it has the framework of being like a, yeah, a mystery, you know, detective type of type of thing. Um, you know, he meets people in bars to ask questions and gets told not to, mm-hmm. not to pursue this any further. It has all those hallmarks, but it's really, a very deeply psychologically interested and emotionally affecting mm-hmm. uh, character study um, that uh, that I, I was really really bowled over by because I, I did mm-hmm. not expect to be as emotionally affected uh, by this movie. Um, I also think the movie. I'm not sure why. Like it's almost an it, so it takes place in rural Pennsylvania. Most of the main cast are British or Irish, doing American accents. Okay. It also. There are so many, especially early on, bumper stickers or signs and windows that say Trump Pence 2016. I don't like, and at first I was like, okay, it's just trying to get a sort of verisimilitude of this type of area. This is definitely a Trump part of the country. But I started to wonder, like, it's MAGA country. uh, Yeah, yeah. I just started to wonder, like, does this director have an axe to grind? (laughs) Like, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would venture to say yes, yeah. <laughs> because many of them seem to in that regard. But uh, yeah. does it but, like? Uh, no, look, it, looking at that, do you feel like there's there's, you know, it's, it's something that. Sorry, I keep referencing my students, but something that I that, uh, that makes sense. 
in, in talking about like film analysis, um, I said, you know, there are certain things that, that you can look for, like certain symbols that are loaded with meaning and, and one of my kids said, like, can you, you know, can you give an example? And I was like, all right, here's a really easy one. If the American flag is in the frame, the director's doing something uh-huh. <laughs> nine times out of 10, uh, I'd say even 99 times out of a hundred. Yeah. Um, and so if you have a Trump Pence, uh, bumper sticker and it takes place in Pennsylvania, it feels like the director must be trying to do something with that story. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't, it, but it also feels like, at least everyone's reaction to different movies is personal for me personally. What I got out of the movie didn't have anything to do with any of that. Okay. But I did, it did make me wonder like, is he not just talking about, is he trying to say like, is he trying to say something trite about how, you know, people in this part of the country are just as capable of, 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 of evil and harm and self-centeredness as, uh, as anyone else and that they're sort of, there's something disingenuous about their, uh, what they think of as American greatness. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe that's what he's trying to say. That, that to me seems more superficial than what's actually good about the movie. Yeah. But it's, I, I, I couldn't not mention it because it's really, it, at least early in the movie, it's very straight up, up in your face. About I'm definitely about intrigued now. Um, anyway, Next movie, uh, I watched a uh, Netflix, I guess, horror, psychological, supernatural horror-ish movie called Cam that I'd heard a lot of really good things about. Uh, it is about a cam girl, which is, again, I'm going to yes. I, I feel like I'm 36, I'm 36 year old. I feel old being like, does everyone understand what that is? Cause I kind it's of didn't the, really, you can even say it like it, you can even hear it in the way it's like a cam girl. Like it yeah. just, I, I haven't put these words together before. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I am kind of, I, I didn't, I kind of understood a little bit that this world existed, but I definitely learned a lot more about it by watching this, this movie. Um, um, and the main the main actress is amazing. It's an amazing performance. She's on um, she's on Handmaid's Tale. Her name is Madeline Brewer, and uh, so she plays um, her cam name is Lola. I've forgotten now what her uh, character's actual name is, but she has people watch her do the her, do her shows, mm-hmm. and then they pay her basically like you sign up for an account with this thing. And you pay a certain amount for like they're like uh, stars or whatever you can give stars, but by giving one of the cam girl stars, they're at, you're actually transferring right. money into the account, so that she can like sort of do certain things on camera if people pay her enough or whatever. Anyway, she has it's a relationship that she has with these with these viewers that is um, uh, I think a little bit more intimate, obviously intimate in some ways, but right. more intimate emotionally than I would have. Uh, imagined um and then here comes the supernatural twist part one day she goes to log on to do a show uh, she can't get into her account she goes to the site and looks and she's already doing a show live she's watching herself hmm. do a show she hasn't done before this isn't it's not a rerun there's suddenly some sort of split where there's two two lolas her in the real world and one that apparently seems to only exist on okay. the channel that's the that's the twist um the movie again is incredibly well performed. The movie rests entirely on Madeline Brewer's oh, shoulders sure. and she is so great. It, that's definitely the best thing about the movie is, is how, how great she is. The script is also very economical. 
very uh intelligent um and it's everything about the movie is good it's just it's a lot of it is unpleasant for me yeah. um to 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 watch i i constantly feel like she's in danger which she is hmm. um cuz some of these men who uh watch her show are very skilled in internet doings and are able to find where she lives mm-hmm. That made me worried for her. In addition to this whole other thing about some one or some thing stealing her identity, uh, she's got real physical world threats. I feel like there's a there's a constant danger and threat to this movie that is very well executed and clearly part of the point, but also did not necessarily make for the most rewatchable movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I'll be returning to this movie anytime soon, but, uh, in- incredibly well done. And again, Madeline Brewer, I'd only seen, I've only seen the first episode of handmaid's tale and I remember her in it. Uh, so I think she's one to watch. All right. Uh, am I doing two or one? I forget. You're just doing one now. Just one now. From okay. here on out. Uh, yeah. So I watched Hereditary. Okay. Which I liked quite a bit. Um, it uh, is difficult to watch in a lot of ways, but it definitely is part of a tradition of films like Rosemary's Baby, The Wicker Man, okay. The Witch. Yeah. Um, movies in which characters who are just trying to live their lives uh, get caught up in supernatural uh, doings, as you said a moment ago. (laughs) Um, And the slow but sure uh, draining away of all hope um, (laughs) as you realize that there are things at play uh, kill list is another example. Uh, there are things at play that these characters are just not prepared to deal with. Um, and often if it's a family, which is not at all uncommon here, uh, with movies like the witch, um, and Rosemary's baby, uh, the, the stressful horror situation that's happening, uh, really underlines the, the cracks that already exist, uh, within the family. And I think that, that, is a big, probably a big thematic element of hereditary is that these characters, uh, are in the midst of grief and then more grief. And one character even says, you know, it would, it, it would be not necessarily worth it, but it would be uh, made a little bit better if we use this as a way, as an opportunity to grow closer, but we don't. Mm -hmm. And it's a really, I think it's a very powerful film. I think it's beautifully shot. Um, I really like the motif of, uh, Tony Collette's character being like a, a miniature artist, mm-hmm. uh, basically just creating scenes completely in mini- in miniature. And I feel like the film is, is sometimes not sometimes, I mean, it's very overtly shot in that way where yeah. you will see a room and you're not, a, it's an establishing shot of room and you're not a hundred percent sure if you're looking at one of her yeah. miniatures or if it's the actual room. Um, I think the, the performances, I think Tony Collette certainly, but also I think Alex Wolf, uh, as her son does a, a great job. I hate to say it. I would like, I would have liked to see a bit more from Gabriel Byrne. I feel like his character could stand to be developed a little bit more, but I also feel like maybe that's probably the, that might be the point Yeah, is that as like the patriarch of the family, he's 
by far the most passive of any of them, including the young girl. Um, he but, has a, like everyone has a line that I think about all the time. Okay. Not because it's a particularly memorable line but because it's weirdly worded. Okay. He says, what language even is that? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think about it all the time. Like, is that the way it was written in the script? Probably. Why does he say what language even is that? Because that's the kind of thing that someone can say. It, it's, it's, it's honestly him saying it is what is strange to me. If uh-huh. a teenager said it, right. Yeah. You yeah. know that I, I would buy more, but yeah, it's little things. There's little things like that. Uh, you know, when you read enough mammoth and I've read uh-huh. my fair share, you run across little things, uh, like that. Um, what is it? Uh, there's a line in American Buffalo where, uh, the Don character is talking about, uh, pig iron and he's a, uh, he goes, he goes, that wasn't, I don't think her pig iron. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, I see what you're doing there, yeah. David, but, uh, David Mammon, I mean, um, but yeah, I really, I liked hereditary a lot. Uh, there are moments that I really loved. I thought the ending was very striking. Um, I seem to recall the ending is my worst, my least favorite part. Well, yeah. And I remember you saying that I think it's, I think it's a strong ending. Um, the thing they think, the thing that, that gets me is that once the film firmly establishes itself as the latest in this tradition of horror movies, the ending is, I don't, it doesn't bother me if a horror, if, if an ending is predictable, um, if there's like a sense of inevitability, which can be very dreadful. Um, but I do think that, uh, that after a certain point, though the actors are doing what they can, uh, I feel like it's sort of just like checking off all the things that it needs to do on the way to that ending. And the ending you know seems, I mean? yeah. Yeah, but I I don't mind the ending being predictable so much as I mind it being an end in itself. Like, it doesn't seem like Ari Aster has anything to say with how the movie ends. It just, like... So that's why I felt... When it ended, I was like, that's it? That's the ending? I mean, which, on the one hand, is a weird reaction because it is kind of a crazy ending. But it's also... That's all it is. It doesn't seem to... It doesn't seem to have anything to do with continuing the themes that the movie has uh, yeah. established. I don't know. Yeah. And there are, some, I, I feel like if I were to watch it again, I might have a better handle on it. Cause I do think that, that the director is trying to do something with that ending that does play into the themes and plays into the title itself. But uh, I think I would need to watch it again. In the meantime, I really liked it. it I did not, yeah. I did not find it to be, uh, to hear some people talk about it. People that, whose tastes I, I absolutely appreciate. Um, I think a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, I think it was his favorite movie of the, of the huh. year. I think one of our writers, it was, it was his or her favorite movie of the year. Um, and so I don't begrudge them that. Um, but some people talk about it as though like, Oh my gosh, I've never seen a horror movie like this before. It's like, I've seen a several of, yeah. and some of them as recently as the witch, which is like yeah. two years ago. That's kind of how I felt about spider verse. Like I really, I like spider verse more than I did hereditary, mm-hmm. but a part of me is like, I, there's something that a lot of people are seeing in this movie that I'm missing. I think, I think it's, uh, I think because I there's think, a novelty to it for some people that honestly, I don't think is there for you and me, not because we're more exposed to other movies, but just we've seen stranger and crazier stuff right. than this. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. 
I watched a movie that I had been kind of putting off because I had assumed it was going to suck. Okay. For a couple of reasons. The movie's called Ben is back. It's oh, dra- I was interested. It's directed by Peter Hedges who made pieces of April, which I hate. Mm-hmm. He made another movie that I think I didn't see. Yeah. Um, he's made a few. Uh, but I, uh, so I, I already wasn't that interested. Plus, uh, Lucas Hedges, Basically, Lucas Hedges had, had already been in a bad family drama this year called Boy Erased, mm-hmm. and there was already a bad, uh, like, rich teenage drug addict movie with Beautiful Boy. Mm-hmm. And so this just felt like it was going to be some, and basically, fall movie, middle brow prestige crap, right. which is what Boy Erased <laughs> and Beautiful Boy are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ben is back. It turns out is good. And I almost felt bad for putting it off for so long. Um, Oh, the odd life of Timothy green. Oh God. Yeah. Which you hated, right? Yeah. But at least that one has the guts to be. Oh, and he also directed, he also directed Dan in real life, which I didn't Didn't see see that. And some people really love other people do not. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Uh, No, that's okay. Um, Ben is back. Does it, it does everything right by, being a it is so it is a drama about a, a drug addict you know and his mom who loves him no matter what to the point where maybe she's not what she's doing as a mother isn't necessarily helpful but she can't she, she can't put the distance between them mm-hmm. that he probably needs to get better yeah um so there's some good stuff there, but it's also the movie's a thriller, which I didn't realize by cause he comes back from rehab, uh, for Christmas and then he's going to go back to rehab. So mm-hmm. he comes back earlier than he was supposed to. And by coming back, his whole past circle of drug addicts and criminals, it kicks things, it stirs things up. His being back, his family's dog ends up getting kidnapped and so most of the movie is Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts driving around the sort of like rich, uh, like New York suburb, like Westchester ish, uh, 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 wintry, uh, small town looking for a dog. That's hmm. mostly what the movie's about. I didn't know the dog thing. But yeah. Okay. But it, so it has this thriller type of, um, uh, sense to it, but also, and I told, uh, this is my wife's, um, uh, observation that i told her i was gonna use and she said you should credit me uh, so I, uh-huh. i'm doing now but she also pointed out that it did uh, it does it it doesn't do something that beautiful boy does well she didn't see beautiful boy but she said uh beautiful boy beautiful boy does what you would expect in that it has a bunch of flashbacks to happier times Ben is back. Doesn't give you any of that. Ben is, oh, ben is back. Completely exists within this like twenty, like thirty six, rough, roughly thirty six hour time frame. The movie mm-hmm. takes place. Completely exists within that, and it also. And, then there are, and so I liked that sort of narrow focus and that restraint to not do that. And there are things with the ending that I don't want to. I don't want to get too deep into because I don't want to give away the ending to people. But unlike most. Uh, of these kind of movies, including again, beautiful boy, the stakes here aren't, is he going to get clean? Right. The stakes are, are they going to make it to this weekend? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's all. And so I think that speaks more to probably the added, the life, the, the, the worries of addicts and people who love addicts is, you know, you hear people in the program talk about one day at a time, yeah. you know, literally 
the the life or death situation here is not do I does this kid get clean and then go off to college and like make something of his life and put this chapter of his life behind him? No, it's does he make it to the next day? Yeah, that that's all it is. And I was uh, really surprised to the, again to the point of feeling guilty for not giving the movie a chance uh, because it ends up being really good. Julia Roberts is great in it. Um, her so Lucas Hedges plays her husband from her husband her child from her first marriage she's now remarried uh, and so I guess the backstory is of the characters is that they didn't Lucas Hedges character didn't grow up rich it wasn't until mm-hmm. his mom Julia Roberts remarried Courtney B. Vance's character um, that they suddenly moved to this sort of Tony suburb and then as a high schooler I guess he had mm-hmm. this uh, wealthy life all of a sudden um, Courtney B. Vance is also great, even though he's not in it very much. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, Mia Culpa, Peter Hedges. Sorry, I didn't give your movie a chance earlier. I was only vaguely interested in the film until I saw the trailer. And then I thought, and, and my first thought was like, oh, this is like Yuli's Gold. Um, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember seeing Yuli's Gold. I know Yuli's I saw Gold. it, but it's got Peter Fonda in it. And it's not exactly that, but essentially he's this, uh, you know, he's, uh, a widower who is, you know, taking care of his family and his son is in prison. Um, and then finds out, uh, I think his son's friends like get out of prison and are looking for money. Uh, okay. and so the idea of, of, right. you know, this, the father having to deal with like his son's like crappy, dangerous, yeah. uh, cohorts and that, that kind of thing. So, can I tell you the one that's weird what sticks with you? The one thing I remember the most about Yuli's Gold okay. is Peter Fonda standing in the kitchen sink, pouring himself a glass of water, and yeah. then drinking the entire glass in one drink. Yeah. And the person, is it Sissy Spacek? No, it's... Uh, Who is it then? Patricia Richardson. Patricia Richardson. Um, comments on that. Yeah. And I remember, because it stuck with me because that is what I have always done. Yeah. And it stuck with me to the point that now, at least once a day, I think of Yuli's Gold because... <laughs> Literally the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I go into the bathroom, I take my Claritin, put it on my tongue, pour an entire glass of water, and mm. drink an entire glass of water. That is the, how I start every day. And so I think of Yuli's Gold every morning. <laughs> All right. Really made a difference, that, uh, that film. <laughs> Not really, because I would be doing this anyway. Right. I just wouldn't be thinking about that scene. Uh, all right, next up for me. Um, a terrific uh, little documentary. I say little because it's only 75 minutes long, but it's not little in terms of uh, how cinematic it is. It's called The Last Race, and it is a documentary about the last stock car racetrack on Long Island. It's the mm-hmm. only one still operating at the time of the movie. I'm not going to give spoilers as to whether or not it closes because the part of the premise, in, in as much as the movie has a narrative, right. part of it is that the... Um, the this area of Long Island, Long Island, I guess back in like the seventies had like forty stock car racetracks. It was a big hub or whatever, yeah. and this is the only one left. And the area around this racetrack has become a big commercial district. There's a lot of big box stores and chain restaurants and stuff, and it's encroaching. And the land that the the land that this racetrack is on is worth more and more money every day. Mm-hmm. And it's owned by a couple who are already half retired anyway. They spend the off race season in Florida. And so the question is, are they going to sell? And is this sort of vestige of uh, working class Long Island life the, for the past few generations going to disappear? Um, but it's not as saccharine as all that. And it's not, again, not really narratively focused. A lot of it is just long 
shots of stock car racing or they um the position cameras inside the car or they position cameras inside the car looking at the driver but then they also have a couple of races where they have the camera inside the car just looking at the passenger side window Mm -hmm. which is a really weird and really beautiful and thrilling way to watch a stock car race is to see cars like coming you know getting closer and and veering past and uh it's really really beautiful stuff um when it does it doesn't really do like the talking head interviews when it does interviews like with either the owners or um there's a guy i think from the city council who's talking about the the way the neighborhood uh, is changing it generally goes all way back and you see them either standing in full profile or you see them sitting where you see them from the desk to the top of there it's not it's definitely not the format of you know black background you know talking head slightly off center thing that you see in in your standard documentary uh uh type of thing and again it's only 75 minutes long there's um uh long shots unbroken takes of just like a kid mowing the lawn or one of the stock car uh one of the stock car races is showing sort of uh the camera never really moves in these it just sort of looks at his backyard and he's over by his shed and he's showing the filmmakers all of the spare parts that he keeps around in case he's like he's like bragging he's like you could do anything to my car every race i got another piece i'll put it back together the next day and beat you next week um and so he has this whole sequence but then he also showed like uh shows his garden <laughs> he's just mm-hmm. like oh and here's my rhododendrons and, and i don't think he has rhododendrons it just seems like a go-to comedy flower reference <laughs> it's a ridiculous um, word yeah uh um it's uh it's it's really really beautiful uh the last race i look forward to uh, this one, unlike Cam, this is one I will revisit probably. All right. Uh, okay, so this is a rewatch for me, but it's been quite a while. I watched it with uh, my middle schoolers. It is Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which wow. is a Disney film. Michael J. Fox. That's right. Yeah. PG. Was it PG? Yeah, because people die in it. Uh, they sure do, yes. Uh, and the villain dies in a fairly disturbing way, actually. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And... Uh, yeah, I hadn't seen it in forever. Uh, I remember very little. Theater. I think I did too. I think I saw it with my mom. I saw it with our friend Mark Kelly. Oh, how is Mark? No idea. I haven't talked to him in years. Yeah, like a decade almost. Yeah, yeah. He was like your best friend, and then I acted alongside him in uh, in Bus Stop, the production and of Bus Stop, William Inge's Bus Stop. That's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not bad actually. Uh, the the it does it does suffer from that it's a very specific type of humor that you will find in kids movies in that era and probably even now um where like the supporting characters are just they can be boiled down to just they've got a funny voice and they say something that's that is maybe a little bit inappropriate or something like that or something the kids would be like oh my gosh i can't believe he he said that um or they're like, oh, they're hitting on, you know, this guy is like hitting on a girl. He doesn't realize she's not interested, you know, that kind of thing. Um, okay. But aside from that, um, I think it's it is a really, you know, it's it's the hand drawn animation. They'd not fully gone into the, the 3D thing yet. Uh, and but it also the characters, you know how Disney, I mean, pretty much its entire, uh, you know, the history of of its animation 
you know, you've got these very nice, like rounded features with everything. Uh, the character design for Atlantis is a little bit different. And I seem to recall as I was looking up trivia that the one, I think like a supervising, like a supervising animator, or at least somebody who was uh, directly, uh, who had a direct influence on the design of it was, um, Oh, was it Mike Mingola or something like that? The guy, the who, guy who made Hellboy. Hellboy. Yeah. And when I when I heard M- that Mignola, uh, I don't recall now. But when I heard that, I was like, Oh, absolutely! Like you look at these character designs, and you're like, Yes, that is undoubtedly where that is from. And so, uh, and the the story is is interesting, and it's just it was kind of this last gasp of like the 2D animation. Yeah. And along those lines, it makes me long for that yeah. um outside of but it was that weird fallow period between like the because like the lions king beauty and the beast heyday had ended right. and we hadn't really got hadn't gotten to the pixar main or pixar wasn't really uh, right. the pixar and disney were still kind of separate that mm-hmm. disney was distributing pixar or whatever and that's so you had atlantis and treasure planet treasure planet yeah uh what else uh, well, I guess you had Lilo and got, Stitch at that like, time, which people like. Yeah, you had Home on the Range. Was that Disney? Yeah. Okay. Um, I forget about. That. I forgot about yeah, that one. Yeah, it was. Uh, and what I one one Brother Bear, Brother Bear is probably right around there. Dinosaur, uh, I think, is around okay. that time. Yeah, that's like where Disney was making original mm-hmm. stories. Uh, Emperor's New Groove being another one. Um, some like of them, that one. Some of them, yeah, I mean, people love Lilo and Stitch and they love, yeah. uh, some of them love Emperor's New Groove. But it was like the co- the, the company trying to figure out what they were going to do, clearly not wanting to necessarily just go back to fairy tales or Hans mm-hmm. Christian Andersen and that sort of thing. Uh, and so I think I think this film, uh, I feel like it, it deserves to be revisited. It's not, it's not a masterpiece by any stretch, but it was, it was interesting. My students enjoyed it and I did as well. Um, <laughs> do you ever feel bad for fictional characters in ways that don't make any sense? Okay. So there's a whole line of Disney princesses. Yes. But Atlantis is one of the movies that has a princess in it. Right. Who is not considered one of the Disney princesses. And That's I weirdly true. feel bad for this character. <laughs> I don't know why. David, I've got some good news for you <laughs> that right. might might alleviate some of your uh, bad feelings. Uh, just think if she was in uh, uh, Ralph 2, right? Sure. Uh, all right. Anyway. It'd be kind of awesome. I didn't see Wreck-It Ralph 2, but if if they like did like the deep cuts yeah. and one of them was the princess from Atlantis, The Lost Empire, that'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> Which, by the way, you just watched and can't remember her name anymore. Oh, no, than of I course can. not. <laughs> She's all not right. much of a character, to be honest. Um, all right. So next up, I watched... I won't talk too much because I ended up making my honorable mentions. Um, Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters. Okay. Um, I like all of his movies. Uh, I... Um, I think he is, he's such an unrelenting humanist that I forget how upsetting some of his movies sometimes could be. Like the, this is a movie about people, you know, not only breaking the law, but also doing things that are at times truly morally reprehensible. But Corriere presents them with not only no judgment whatsoever, but a sort of, uh, a, 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 just a, a sort of unwavering, just human love. Just, mm-hmm. I feel like he loves people and I, 
Um, I feel like I like people more than I actually do whenever I watch a Koreeda movie. Hmm. Uh, and, and this movie ends up being incredibly touching to the point of reminding yourself that like, Oh yeah, these people like hit an old lady's dead body so they could keep collecting her pension checks. Like, <laughs> she died of natural causes. Right. They're not monsters. They're not monsters. <laughs> <laughs> but like, they're not good people, but I love them because yeah. they are a family and they probably love each other. They don't come out and say that. Yeah. But they probably do in some way. Anyway, uh, beautiful movie. Definitely worth checking out. Speaking of beautiful, <laughs> uh, maybe the exact, it's weird I t- to go straight from someone who is a, a true humanist like Hirokazu Kurieta to go to the most unabashedly, one of the most unabashedly misanthropic worker, uh, directors working today. Hang on, hang on. Who hang also on. happens to be a genius, I think. Oh, okay. Is it Lars von Trier? Yes. Okay. Next movie I watched was The House That Jack Built. Okay. I did not pair those intentionally. Um, um, but, uh, th- I mean, this is a movie that will be uh, very... I'll surprise myself if I watch it again, even though it is really astoundingly well-realized. I think, um, I think that it, I I get frustrated with people who dismiss Lars von Trier by saying he's a provocateur Mm -hmm. because to me, that's where you start. (laughs) Like, yes, Lars von Trier is a provocateur. His movies. And I would say the house of Jack built, in particular is made, you know, a lot of his movies I think are about him in some ways, but this is a movie that's very much about him as an artist. I think, um, uh, the house of Jack builds a movie that it doesn't do anything so trite as to say, uh, Oh, this, what this serial killer does is like, a work of art in its own. Right. Again, like with the provocateur thing, it starts there. Yeah. It's like, yes, this is how he sees it. He sees himself uh, as an artist. Let's go further. Let's ask why. Let's ask why we are watching it. Mm-hmm. And you know why it was, it was weird watching this after I'd seen extremely wicked, the Ted Bundy movie that I saw at Sundance which is a serial, serial killer movie that has, except for like one shot does not actually show um, Ted Bundy commit a single act of violence mm-hmm. in the entire movie. And I think the house of Jack Bill is a movie that's saying, well, let's not deny that there's a reason we watch serial killing movies. Yeah. Let's not deny that these, these actions and the depictions of these actions carry a power and in some sick ways and allure for us. And let's go through there. And again, I think the thing that makes, that makes me want to dismiss large venture as a provocateur is at no place. Does he give you an out to be like, obviously we all agree. This is terrible. Like he, he commits yeah, and it makes the movie incredibly uncomfortable. Um, there's, you know, it, the, the murders are graphic, but what, what is really upsetting is that, in an, in most of the murders we see, there's a long scene leading up to the murder where we know this person's going to get murdered yeah. and they come to realize it over the course of the scene. Ooh. That's the stuff that's harder to watch than any of the actual violence, even though the movie is really, really bloody. Um, uh, and yeah, and it's like two and a half hours long. It's, it's not, uh, not, you know, as with usual large venture movies, he doesn't do anything by half measures. Um, but also it is worth 
sitting through for the finale. I don't know if you know what you know about the premise of the movie. Very little. So much like, did you see Nymphomaniac? No. Okay. So Nymphomaniac has, um, um, Charlotte Gainsbourg talking to, um, Stellan Skarsgård's character as a framing device. And she's telling the story of her life. So you keep jumping back. This one has a similar thing, except we don't know. We just see blackness and we hear Matt Dillon in another voice and we hear him, talking about his life and he's like i'm gonna pick five murders ends up being a little more than he finds ways to cram more than one murder but it's basically in like five sections and over the course of the in between those sections we come back to the story but it's still mostly just a black screen and voices but over the course of them we realize where he is and who he's talking to mm. and then sort of so the sixth section of the movie if you will or really the fifth section sort of there's no temporal break between the fifth section and the end of the movie it follows immediately and so the final section is just them talking um and you realize what's what's going on and um uh what they're up to and that section is beautiful absolutely beautiful um yeah yeah i really want to watch it except i also don't uh (laughs) but i that oddly enough yeah the I mean, I've seen some graphic stuff, and and, it, and it's disturbing, thankfully. Um, uh, but there's that, like, the moment of realization, the concept of that is uh, deeply disturbing yeah. to me. Yeah, So. All right. Next up for me is the film Cold War. Okay. Which um, was not, I don't think I talked about it last week, and I don't think you did no. either. Uh, two weeks ago, pardon me. Yeah, but, um, uh, you know, a couple months ago when Scott did his top yeah. ten. Yeah, it was up there at the top. Uh, and then we do talk about it uh, during the BPs, which is available for sale for $1.50. Or it is free to, uh, the audio, pardon me, is free for uh, Patreon subscribers. Well, yeah, if you're a Patreon it's subscriber, included. you get it. It's included. Yeah, it's not there free. It is included in your Patreon subscription. Um, there is video if you're an admiral level That's patron. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a film that I really, really liked, um, occasionally loved, um, beautiful to look at. Uh, I really, uh, talking with Scott about it, uh, was helpful to me because I found myself not totally invested. No, I was invested. That's not true. I had a hard time filling in the gaps of like this love story. To such a degree that I found myself thinking like, well, maybe it's, is it meant to be a full on love story or is it the story of two people who do love each other in the midst of larger things mm-hmm. and the larger things are what the movie is actually about. And I think it's probably that. Yeah. Um, and this idea that, um, <clears throat> that these characters, my, my view was that, uh, these characters fall in love in a more pure and free time in their lives individually when they're making music and making love and all of that. Uh, and then, uh, the communists take over and, and assert themselves much more into their lives. And, and suddenly they are so focused on survival and maybe scraping together whatever, whatever qualifies as happiness for them, uh, that like, that the the they do love one another but i do think that i think they see each other more as what that person represents in their lives as opposed to the person 
themselves, which would explain some things because I, in watching it, the two char- the actors do a fine job, but the characters themselves, you don't really know what makes them tick. Uh, you only know what who they used to be, and you got a much stronger sense of who they were at that time. Um, and so I do think that it is, I think, partially about the dehumanizing nature of, of communism, certainly Soviet communism at the time, and um, but also like the the attempt, maybe even uh, an attempt in vain to retain one's humanity in the midst of a of a struggle that is much larger than than oneself and so uh i really responded to it and even as i talk about it now i think i think it would like go up higher on my list um Mm. but i think it's a, a really marvelous film and and i also in talking about the cinematography i mean yes it's in black and white yes it's in the was it the academy ratio right that's what people say yeah um i I, it's one three three or one three seven. Right. I'm not sure which. That I'm sorry. I'm not enough of a cinephile to differentiate between one three three and one three seven. But I think one three seven is like we just lost true, some Patreon subscribers. <laughs> I think one three seven is like true full aperture, and one three three is like TV. Okay. I don't know. I could be wrong. It is interest. It is interesting the to <laughs> the director's choice to shoot the film in that aspect ratio. I think it partially has to do with the idea of the inherent limitations that the characters are living in. But also within that, there's a lot of headroom in the film. Like as you, as you watch it, like, did you Mm -hmm. think about that? Uh, I, I didn't when I watched it, but I, I think you're not the first person that I've heard mention. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do think that that speaks to the theme, uh, the themes of the film of these characters, either feeling very small or quite literally just being small and just, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of the individual kind of going as like the individual being the central, most important figure and that being like sort of symbolically pushed down, uh, by communism, uh, in the film. And, uh, I really, I really responded to it. Um, but I didn't quite love it. I think because it's just, it's not that emotional of a film and it's not trying to be and that's Mm -hmm. fine. But I tend to like movies that have some level of emotional investment. All right. Uh, next up I watched, uh, Academy award nominee and more importantly, BP nominee. There we go. Mirai. Okay. The, uh, uh, anime movie, which is something that I've been, uh, I found that, Maybe basically since I stopped working at a video store, I've really fallen off on keeping up on Japanese animation. Mm. It it seems like it's increasingly hard, like hard like you you have to be a fan enough to seek it out. It seems yeah. like unfortunately, it's you have to it, sign up for the newsletter or something. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when we worked at a video store, like we got everything, mm-hmm. so I would always just watch the DVDs. So I would like be be up on what was uh, what was going on. But I I, I watched so few. Japanese animated movies anymore, yeah. uh, which is too bad because I missed things like Your Name or uh, what was the other one? Uh, the one that took place in Hiroshima. Um, oh, it has a long, like a full. It's like a it does title. Have, like, yeah, yeah. Something in the world, the world. Uh, yeah, now I don't um, uh, Anyway, so I watched Mirai, and in some cases, it did what I want, um, animated movies to do it in that it was able to go to do magical realism in ways you couldn't do on in real life to be yeah. like a domestic, you know, sort of light family drama 
and then I don't know if you know the story. It's about a young boy. It's basically about the pretty universal thing of like the only child suddenly becoming very jealous when there's a new baby. Right. That's pretty much what the movie is about. So it's about this young boy who has a younger sister now and doesn't know how to handle it. Isn't getting as much one-on-one time with the parents anymore. Mm -hmm. And so he ends up going and playing in the yard and going into these sort of like fantasy realms where like, his dog is suddenly represented by a person that he can talk to and Mm -hmm. they're in a jungle instead of just a backyard with one tree in it or whatever. Uh, and it, those fantasy sequences I found, uh, really, uh, really beautiful, really, really compelling. Um, I would say the thing that kept me from liking it is that I don't think, I feel like that setup of like, okay, he's jealous is something we're being told more than shown. And Mm -hmm. so his tantrums, don't I wasn't on his side the, the boy right like whenever he'd like be throwing a fit and being a brat I'd be like oh I'm so glad I don't have kids like, <laughs> like uh, I would uh, I don't know if I'd be able to resist smacking the shit out of this kid <laughs> when in fact what the film is saying is no 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 you shouldn't feel that way you should be glad that you don't have two kids right that's it yeah just stick uh, with the one and you're fine yeah uh so yeah there's some beautiful stuff in it uh it I didn't love it quite as much as I'd hoped and the next one for me I don't have anything more to say because it was in my top ten, but it's Alice Rohrwacher's Happy as Lazzaro. Right. Or Lazzaro Felice, which is much more fun to say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that one's on Netflix. Check it out. Okay. Uh, next up for me is Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, uh, <coughs> which I liked quite a bit. Um, didn't make either of our top ten. Did not make our top ten. I don't uh, mention for me. It was for Yeah, not for me. It just, it just missed it. Um Increasingly, Corone is a director whose work I appreciate on an intellectual level and an artistic level. But even despite him being, I think, a very humanistic director, uh, I often feel at a remove from his movies. And I honestly, there are times when I wonder if it's because of the the visual choices that he makes. There are times when I feel like... I mean, I felt this way with the children of men that those long takes and just the camera doing kind of this very fluid stuff, um, very impressive. And I understand what he's doing, but it tends to put me at arm's length. Like, and there's nothing wrong with having a work of art that you appreciate and even one that you like. But I often, I often felt like I was on the outside looking in with Roma um, so that's kind of what kept me from loving it, even though all, yeah. all the different elements of it are great, but like put all together and it just never quite worked for me. I definitely had some of the, that same reaction. Okay. All right. Uh, moving I on. I feel bad saying, oh. being overtly negative about it, but like, You're I don't mean to suggest compared that compared like, to some of the people I follow on Twitter, which, okay. uh, yeah, there's Roma. There, it's not a La La Land level backlash, right. but there, had, there was a strong Roma backlash, uh, this year. Um, and you know what? I didn't click on any of those. So I don't actually know what people's problem with okay. the movie is. Yeah. Uh, anyway. All right. Next up for me is a movie that would not really have been on my radar. Um, no, no, it was on my radar. I was aware of it, but would not have really caught my interest because I don't follow professional wrestling, but everyone told me it was great. And Tyler, fighting with my family is so great. I wasn't interested 
until I found out who directed it. Yeah, wrote, and wrote and directed. Wrote yeah. and directed. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, here? Stephen Merchant. I'm very excited. Has a small role in the movie as as well. Um, it's so great. It mm. is the. I mean, in some ways, it's a very by the numbers sort of you know feel good inspirational sports movie. It's a based on, and now I forget what they. Uh, what the wrestler's real name is. Right. Um, but, uh, basically a, uh, poor, uh, not poor, lower, lower class, lower middle class, I guess, um, family from, uh, a small, uh, from Norwich, England, mm-hmm. who, um, uh, the, the patriarch and matriarch are Nick Frost and Lena Hetty, and they mm-hmm. are, past criminals and drug addicts who have found their true life's calling in professional wrestling and they run a small professional wrestling sort of circuit in their own uh, town and they have raised their children to be they're just a family of wrestlers Mm -hmm. and then the youngest the daughter actually gets you know does a a tryout uh, and gets selected to um, train with I guess next is like the I, again, I don't know wrestling that much, but I guess next is like the minor leagues of the WWE. Okay. Like it's a, it's like the farm team. Okay. Um, and so she gets, uh, uh, selected to be a next, uh, wrestler. And so the movie suddenly jumps from, you know, Norwich, England to Florida, which is where the, hmm. the training, uh, is. Um, and you've got Vince Vaughn as the recruiter slash trainer, uh, of next. And with, when it comes to Vince Vaughn, it's a coin toss for me. Yeah. I'm happy to report he's really good in this. Uh, he gets off a couple of great Vince Vaughn yeah. lines. There's a so when he when when she and her brother go for the auditions, it's at a WrestleMania event in, at the O2 in London, and they run into The Rock. It's mm-hmm. Dwayne Johnson playing himself, and he's like there doing a uh, an announcing thing, and they're like asking him for advice, and then Vince Vaughn walks in, and he's like, "Hey, are you two here for the auditions? You don't get to just hang out with The Rock. What do you make a wish, kids?" <laughs> um, that, that was funny. And then later, when they're training, every, and you know they're physically training, but they also are training to do their like their personas thing. Right. And there's this one guy whose name he doesn't have a wrestling name. His real name is Augustus Heights, and he's like, "I'm Augustus Heights." And Vince Vaughn goes, "Augustus Heights, are you about to inherit a brewery?" <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he sells that. Uh, anyway, but the movie isn't just all uh, uh, Vince Vaughn one-liners. The mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the comedy comes from Nick Frost and Lena Headey for yeah. sure, uh, and then um, Stephen Merchant has a couple of scenes with them. Um, but it's it, it's it, it, everything about it is pretty predictable. There's the like. You know, she's the scrappy one who can. And then she goes to train, and then she starts to feel like, oh, maybe I can't. She has a moment of self doubt. Right. She goes back to her family, and they're like, no, you can. And she's like, you know what? You're right. I can. <laughs> you could. I mean, you could have written the thing from the outset in terms of the beats, mm-hmm. but it's it's done without an ounce of condescension. It's very funny. The lead actress, I haven't even said her name yet. It's Florence Pugh, uh, who was in um, Outlaw King and okay. was also in Lady Macbeth, which I didn't see. Um, she's fantastic. Also, the actor who plays her brother, who I'm forgetting now, is also really good. There's a running joke. The story makes fun of a time when he was younger in the wrestling ring and he wore his dad's shorts and they were too big and his penis fell out of the, the hole in the shorts and everyone makes fun of it. Um, and uh, his sort of like 
frustrated but proud like sort of reaction reaction to each version of this story is uh one of the better running jokes of of the movie it, it's really good it also has okay this is the last thing and then i'll go on to my next movie there's a part at the end because uh, uh dwayne johnson is a producer of the movie mm-hmm. he's in a couple of scenes as himself and there's a part near the end that there's no reason for this shot to be in the movie of the rock and Vince Vaughn standing together, watching a wrestling match. It really felt like a studio saying we need to have the two bigger names in the movie in one shot. Right. So that we can put it in the trailer. But then I watched the trailer and that shot's not in there. (laughs) But in the moment of watching the movie, it took me out. It's like, there's no reason like the rock, the last time we saw him, he was like on his way out of the building. Yeah. He came back in just to stand next to Vince Vaughn for a second to watch. Like, it doesn't really have anything yeah. to do with it. It really felt like a studio mandated, like, let's get a shot to put in the trailer. And then it's not in the trailer. I, I didn't understand. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, really, really great movie. Uh, and next up for me, uh, oh, from something this year to going back 90 years in the past 1929's Der Hund von Baskerville ah. which is a German silent version of The Hound of the Baskervilles which is uh, according to it's out on uh, Blu-ray from Flickr Alley looks great um, restored by uh, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival in someone in Europe I can't remember now um, it's in my review you can read it on the website uh, it is according to Flickr Alley the final the last silent film version of Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know Sherlock Holmes stories that well. I know them from other movie and TV adaptations. I haven't actually read any of them, right. um, but I like the Hound of the Baskervilles because it's one of the few Sherlock Holmes stories that is a horror story as much as, yeah. even though I mean, you could probably guess if you know, Sherlock Holmes, the re- resolution is very Scooby Doo. Like, ah, there was nothing supernatural going on right. at all, but it still has all that beats and those beats and the, and, and the setting. And this movie definitely plays into that being, you know, at the tail end of sort of German expressionism in 1929, mm-hmm. you've got, uh, you know, the idea of a sort of Gothic, you know, yeah. Moorish, you know, or a state on the Moors, not Moorish like uh, Othello, but an estate on the Moors, um, uh, and and uh, some sort of spectral beast stalking the grounds. Like, it hits all that stuff. It's really good. Um, the, the restoration is really good, what they could do. There are some missing reels, uh, Metropolis style, where they just have, mm-hmm. like, still photos and text on the screen being like, here's what Sherlock Holmes said here. And yeah. then he met this guy, and he said this. And then it gets back into the He movie. solved the mystery. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, that would be a yeah. setting. It would just, like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was the butler. Um... <laughs> He was, uh, you know, he had a flashlight and uh, yeah. a couple of matches and just held him in front. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Um, yeah. So that, that's very good. And that, that Blu-ray is out now on a, uh, from Flickr Alley. All right. Uh, next for me is uh, another rewatch. Uh, it is Yasujiro Ozu's Late Spring. Um, and I've never seen this one. Man, it's good. I think I, I think I still prefer Tokyo Story, but uh, Late Spring is pretty amazing, and I think it, it benefits from actually, uh, like, paring down the the cast. There really are only three main characters, uh, and it's about this uh, uh, this father who this this 
aging uh, professor who's a widower and his daughter who he loves tremendously. She's 27. She's getting to the age where she might, she's not like marryable. Um, okay. And obviously it's, you know, Japanese culture and he is an older guy and he's, he's, you know, very traditional. And so uh, he is very, he just wants to get her like, married off because but she doesn't want to not because she doesn't but because she feels like well no my my mother's gone and i'm who's going to take care of my dad and then he says well no that's no reason for you to not continue on with your life and be and be happy and all that um and so as is the case with uh, ozu in general you know the the theme of the traditional way of doing things versus the new way. And then like the relationship between older and younger. Um, uh, it's, it's a really beautiful story that is beautifully acted. And, and it does, uh, it does this thing where it builds up to big events in these characters lives, but you see the buildup and then you see the aftermath. You don't see the event itself. Um, and, I think that's something that I, as a fan of John Cassavetes, who often said that he found the true drama in anticipation or the disappointment after an event, but the event itself, like, yeah, we've all, we all know that, but often we, uh, we're sort of like if, if it's a wedding, for example, we're all sort of playing a part at a wedding. You know, nobody's going to actually say, yeah, I don't think these two are going to make it. Nobody says that everybody at the wedding has to act like they're happy. <laughs> um, but afterwards that's when the real humanity comes out. And, uh, and Ozu definitely plays into that. And it is, he's just such a patient filmmaker. And I, 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 this is the, my second time seeing the film. My students really liked it, uh, which surprised me because Ozu is also a very meditative filmmaker. Uh, and so I wasn't sure if they were going to like it, but they really responded to it. Even though it's in black and white? Even though it's in black and white, even though it's not in English. Um, and uh, yeah, I, listeners, if you haven't seen it, and David, I think you would, you would uh, absolutely love it. All right. <clears throat> uh, next up. Uh, another one that took me by surprise. Um, <coughs> the director's name is, well, fuck. Anthony Morris. Anthony Morris's Hotel Mumbai. Okay. Which was a movie that, uh, was at TIFF when I was at TIFF? I didn't see it. I saw the other Dev Patel movie uh, at TIFF, The mm-hmm. Wedding Guest, which sucked. Should have okay. seen Hotel Mumbai, although I might have had to go uh, lay down afterwards. Because Hotel Mumbai is, um, well, it's... Um, the best Paul Greengrass movie I've seen in years, okay. which is means better than 22 July. Indeed. Uh, it's about the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai, which was a coordinated. There were like 12 terrorist attacks happening at the same time. Um, this one specifically uh, is about the hotel that was taken hostage and um, uh, scores of people were, were killed uh, over a couple of days. Um, and uh it it really does have that paul greengrass like just moment to moment feet on the ground uh intense uh subjectivity mm-hmm. uh feeling to it, it which is exhausting um it's an incredibly upsetting movie uh, a very violent movie um but also a movie that doesn't 
um, you know, it's not like we, we've, we've, you and I have also uh, often talked about how much we hate the Pearl Harbor sequence in Michael Bay's Pearl mm-hmm. Harbor because it seems to be like, isn't this cool? Yeah. There's none of that in here. The, the movie never forgets that the most important thing to these people who are, who are, who are living and in some cases not living through this is the, is one another and the, the, that and the value and sanctity of each individual's life. Um, even as, uh, like I said, people are being mowed down a half dozen at, at a time. Um, so among the, uh, the, and I guess the, um, so, and it, this is true that the, 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 the terrorists while they were in the hotel were on a constant sort of, um, telephone dialogue with their, I don't know, handlers or mm-hmm. the uh, people who were directing them what to do. And a lot of those, I guess, recordings exist so a lot of the terrorist dialogue is apparently what they were actually saying at the time um and so a couple of them are characters but the main characters are of course the um the hostages uh and and employees so you've got uh dev patel is one of the employees and also i was just looking up his name um anapam care uh, he's apparently huge in India. Uh, this guy, he's in like the big oh, okay. sick and he's in Ben yeah. Peckham. He's really good. They, they play the two main employees. Uh, and then you've got, um, army hammer and Nazanin Boniadi. Do you know Nazanin? She was on Homeland oh, Homeland. Okay. She's very good. Uh, army hammer and Nazanin Boniadi play a couple. And then, uh, Jason Isaacs plays a, um, uh, rich, Russian prick who of course ends up being one of the heroes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a great, it's a great, uh, Jason Isaac's role doing a thick Russian accent. Nice. Um, he's like at the fancy before the, uh, terrorist attack, he's at the fancy like restaurant at the hotel ordering his food, eating alone and then ordering an escort to his room and being very specific about nipple size, like out loud. <laughs> oh, wow. and so they're immediately like, yeah, fuck this guy who talks with them. And then of course he ends up like having yeah. the, uh, you know, uh, having, he ends up saving multiple people. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I won't go too much further into it. Just no going. Cause I saw, uh, I saw it with our friend, Aaron, uh, Aaron Newworth and like afterwards we were both like, Ooh, like that took a lot out of, uh, out yeah. of me. Um, it just, yeah, I know that it's intense, but, um, like the best Paul Greengrass movies, um, it exists for, uh, for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, there's something, you know, the, uh, we, I think people, unfortunately over the 21st century, so many countries have their terrorist attack, you yeah. know? And I think, it's there's an there's an ability to think of like well there's ours there's in this case nine eleven mm-hmm. and then to sort of think of and then there were all these other ones you know and that's um, not placing them on a lower <laughs> level right. but you don't think about them as deeply as you do the ones that happen closer to home and so to and you probably uh, the tendency is under understandably the tendency is probably to think in terms of okay how many people died in the attack? Obviously right. ours was a very high number. Yeah. So that's, that one is put pretty high, but yeah. it's just like, yeah, but even if it's just like three or four people in a bombing, like that's still yeah. a horrendous yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, that's true. That's true. Um, and so I, I think there is something uh, when these kind of movies are done well, like your United 93s mm-hmm. or, or this one, um, they do serve a, a, a purpose, uh, you, you know, of make, making you consider 
what these actions are on a human level, not a you know geological or not geolo- geographical or social political uh, mm-hmm. level. All right, uh, that was my first of the this batch, right? I, got I believe so. Another yeah. one to go. Um, uh, let's skip a few here because I'm saving those for another episode. Um, next up, oh, I told you that uh, uh, I don't. When I do pro- research for our profiles, I don't talk about those in the movie. Channel. Oh, got it. Okay. I save those for when we do the profile. Makes sense. Okay. So um, I've got some films by our next profile. I see. That I'm skipping over. So next up, I, I mentioned that uh, young Bruno Curry was making an appearance. He's just one of many in uh, the new restoration of Joan Micklin Silver's 1977 Between the Lines, which is an independent film um, that was the feature at the closing night of, uh, so at the UCLA film and television archive, mm-hmm. uh, go Bruins. Uh, Damn right. Did uh, I tell you, so I was, uh, <laughs> so I have a UCLA bumper, uh, sticker or I guess like a, whatever you want to call it. It's on the black, uh, the back uh, windshield of my car. Oh, okay. And, um, and so I was driving for lift decal. Decal. That okay. sounds right. Uh, I was driving for lift several months ago and I picked up this, uh, older couple and who, who I guess, noticed the the decal which i placed there myself but i am despite being very proud that i went to ucla i'm not tuned in to co- like, like pride, pride in your college okay. you know right. and so um <clears throat> so when they got in the car the guy's like he goes are you a bruin and i was like what <laughs> I, just, I, I was like what the hell are you talking like i i was genuinely <laughs> aggressively confused by what he was asking. What if he thought he was asking if you were into homebrewing your own beer? And that's his like weird old timey way of saying it. Are you a Bruin? I'm a driving. Um, but uh, yeah. And then it took me a minute to realize what he was talking about. Anyway, I'm sorry you were saying, okay, so um, for the past couple months, uh, the UCLA film and television archives archive has been doing a series called liberating Hollywood, which is about, uh, mostly 1970s female directors, female Hollywood mm-hmm. directors. It's based on a book called liberating Hollywood. Um, I went to a couple of these, but this was the closing night because it's a brand new restoration of a 1977 film. It's called between the lines. It is an ensemble comedy about a sort of, uh, independent, um, free weekly, uh, newspaper in Boston that is in danger of being sold to a sort of bigger conglomerate, um, which, uh, it's crazy to think someone made a movie about that, but that is, that, that has happened and it's happened to the point that now independent weeklies are few and far between. Uh, in fact, we've, Los Angeles has essentially lost its. And I mean, LA Weekly still exists, but no one reads it anymore. And yeah. It's like twelve pages long now. I don't know if you picked one up recently. They're like, no, they're nothing. Yeah, anymore. Because um, yeah, it's just a penny saver now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but let me run down some of this cast okay. for you. Okay, you've got John Hurd. He's right. like the the he plays like the veteran uh, reporter who's been there since the since the opening of the of the thing you've got Lindsay Krauss who right. is the the staff photographer Jeff Goldblum plays the rock critic uh Bruno Kirby mm-hmm. plays the intern um <laughs> Gwen Wells from uh from Nashville Yeah 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 she she's one of the other uh long she's the only one I think who's been there said as long as John Hurt's character has mm-hmm. Stephen Collins plays someone who <laughs> started the paper and now has a book deal okay um and he's dating Gwen Wells 
character. Uh, Michael J. Pollard, you know, he is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he plays the guy who goes out on the street and stands in traffic and sells the the, the paper. That sounds uh, right to me. He was the getaway driver in uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Uh, Joe Morton plays a writer. Right. Mary Lou Henner plays a stripper that John Hurt's character interviews for a story. <laughs> okay. Um, Doug Kenny, co-founder of National Lampoon, has a small role. Oh, okay. Very small role is uh, a guy who reads Jeff Goldblum's rock, co- rock column. Uh, apparently the first movie role of Raymond J. Barry hey. who plays the least Raymond J. Barry role you can possibly imagine. Okay. He plays a performance artist. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, and it, I guess it scared him straight playing that role. And then finally, the other, uh, only other name I know, you know, Lane Smith. That um, name sounds very familiar. Let me, uh, uh Saf's being so slow. I'll show you his picture. Um, he's this guy. Oh yes, he's of been course. In a, a oh yeah, things. So he plays the the guy. He's well, he's the he's the bad coach in Mighty Ducks, right? He's the opposing right. coach. That's like and weirdly. he's the father-in-law from son-in-law. Oh, is he? Okay, yeah. Uh, he's also my my cousin Vinny. Um, he's in Network, uh, right? Um, anyway, uh, he plays the guy who might be buying the paper. So anyway, I've run down the whole cast because it's yeah. so fascinating to me. That this was like. This was an independent movie. This wasn't like this wasn't an all star cast at the time. Yeah. This is like one of those weird things like, oh, they all went on to yeah. uh, to something. Um uh but it really is just a kind of a hangout movie. It doesn't really have much of a plot, um, except for there's certain sort of uh love triangle because like I said, Stephen Stephen Collins and Gwen Wells characters are together. He is moving up in the world as a writer and wants to move to New York. She wants to stay in Boston because she used to work to the paper and loves the mm-hmm. paper. Then you've got John Hurd's character who has an on again, off again relationship with Lindsay Krauss. Um, and so you, there's some relationship stuff that is sort of a through line, but really it's just a series of scenes of these people hanging out and sort of doing journalism. You never really see anyone write. Mm. Um, in fact, with Jeff Goldman's character, it's like a running joke that he's a rock critic who never actually writes. He like okay. makes money by going to the record store and selling the free records that he gets as a rock critic. <laughs> um, uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah. It's like, that's his, he takes Bruno Kirby along just to like, have someone to carry the records, but does it as like, you're an intern. I'm teaching you what it's like to be a rock critic. Mm-hmm. Bruno Kirby's like, I don't want to be a rock critic. What am I doing here? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It's a, so it's a, it's a very funny, it feels loose and independent, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, and it feels like a, I think it's a second feature for Joan Micklin silver. Um, uh, her first one was called Hester street, which is supposed to be great. I haven't seen it. Um, uh, but uh, this new restoration that uh, I think Cohen Media uh, did is really, really flawless. Um, and if you're a fan of any of the many actors that I just ran down, uh, you should definitely check it out. I'm sure I'm sure that a new restoration like this means there's probably a Blu-ray coming at some point. Um, so uh, definitely check it out. All right. What's next right. for you? Next for me is <laughs> you can like you can literally look at the movies that I've been talking about and you can determine at what point we then recorded our top 10 and I have moved on to 2019. Okay. Um, escape uh, room, Alita battle angel. Oh, I want to see this. Okay. In many ways, it is very good. The script is not one of them. Um, well, it's James Cameron, right? It's Jam- partially. Yes. Part for the course. Yeah. Uh, clunky as hell. Um, 
but it's Robert Rodriguez. And I forget sometimes, I don't remember the last movie of his that I saw. Um, but I forget. God, what was the last movie? What was more recent? Spy Kids 2 or Once Upon a Time in Mexico? <laughs> I, I think Once Upon a Time in Mexico. I then think. that's probably the last one of his that I saw. I mean, I saw Sin City, but that was 2005. Um, but yeah, like he's a guy who, who can put, well, you saw the, the sci-fi one, the, 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 uh, grindhouse one. What's it called? Planetary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Planetary. That's right. Yeah. 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 I didn't um, see that one, but I forget that as oh, I did watch the pilot of the from dust till dawn TV series, which he directed. How was it? Uh, it's great. It basically takes the Benny's world of liquor opening scene of from dust to dawn mm-hmm. and makes it an entire TV. Episode. Oh, great. It's really, it was actually really good. Um, but yeah, it's, the film has a really nice visual look to it. I think he does. He uses the, the, the CG effects to create these cybernetic, uh, people who are often just completely robotic bodies but with a human face uh on them uh he he just he creates this he creates the world to such a degree that like it just all becomes very commonplace and very casual uh watching cyborgs walk around and i really i really liked that and then the the action sequences the film is is very episodic um which makes sense given that it was based on a it's based on a comic series Mm -hmm. um and so some of the episodes work better than others, but that's all right. Give it seven minutes. Right. You'll, you'll be on to the next thing. Uh, so it does at times feel a little bit adrift, but for the most part, I still enjoy it. Um, it is extremely violent. Um, as I was watching, I was like, is this rated R? I don't think it is. Yeah, I think I, it's PG 13, it but you know, you have characters being cut in half, uh, like vertically, and then they just fall to the side, and you see like they're like, it's like oh, their blood's purple, so I guess it's okay. Mm, yeah, um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of characters uh, die. There's a there's a character who we don't see this happen, but the character is reduced to just like all these different organs in jars, including like a brain connected to eyes that are like looking around and it's a very disturbing concept. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it definitely is in many ways is very, it's uncompromising. Um, and I, I think I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed it while I was watching it. I would recommend it. I also just not cause I went out of my way, but it was the only showtime, um, available at the time. Uh, I saw it in 3d and I think it's a pretty good use of 3d, um, which is not something I think much about, uh, for the most part. I think the last 3d movie I saw where I actually remember the 3d was Dr. Strange, which at this point is several years old. Um, so yeah, I, I was happy that I saw it. Uh, it's something of a, you know, kind of a trifle, but, uh, but I did enjoy it quite a bit. All right. Uh, <clears throat> moving on to the second half of that, uh, that bill with between the lines is another, um, Joan Micklin silver film that I didn't know anything about and has now become one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time. Okay. Uh, 1988. It's called crossing Delancey. Oh yeah. I know. Amy Irvin, a- yeah. Amy Irving, 
and Peter uh, Riegert, Peter right? Riegert are yeah. the, uh, the 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 couple, and then in uh, I guess sort of love triangle way. Uh, I never know how to say this guy's name. The bad guy from the Fugitive, your own Crabby. Uh, yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> That's how I say it. Okay. Um, he's the, the, uh, she, so she works at a, at a bookstore. Uh, he is a famous writer who lives in the neighborhood and frequents the bookstore. And so she's kind of smitten with him. And then, uh, she does her uh she's very close her parents have retired to move to florida she's but she's very close to her grandma or her booby as she's called mm-hmm. in the in the movie who uh enlists the services without consulting amy irving's character enlists the services of a marriage broker to find a jewish husband for her um and that ends up being peter Riegert. um and uh it's well it's certainly the kind of movie that wouldn't have been made fun of in isn't it romantic because it is not, I mean, I call it a romantic comedy, but it's not really a member of the genre because it, it's, it's so, it's so thoughtful and so adult and also very, it's very funny. Yeah. But I think even a lot of the best romantic comedies subscribe to a sort of scheme often a moral sexual type scheme of like what sex means, what love means, what marriage means, you know, and why they happen in the order they happen. And, uh, this is a movie that is much more, uh, down to earth and realistic and in the now of what, in uh, a late 20, 20th century New York city adults life might be like, you know, the, she's not, uh, just waiting for the right one to come along. She's perfectly happy not being married. She's also not, you know, whatever, like it's a mean term, but she's not like frigid. She has a, essentially a fuck buddy mm-hmm. in, in, in the movie. Um, she, she's pretty fulfilled. And Peter Riegert is on the other hand, not some Prince charming. Yeah. He's like, a guy who inherited his father father's business runs it with his brother. He's generally a pretty happy guy and well liked, but he uh, thinks there's that there might be something more in this mm-hmm. uh, relationship than she she's hesitant um, because of her infatuation with uh, with this with this writer. But it doesn't follow any of the fairy tale, you know, storyland type of beats of even yeah. good romantic comedies. It really does seem like a an adult drama with comic relief in it. Um and uh and also Peter Riegert is never someone that you'd think of as a rom com lead. I guess he's yeah. kind of a romantic lead in not a romantic lead, romantic character in Animal House, but even then it's Animal House. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. But he's supposed to be like the He's like the Bill Murray character in mm-hmm. Animal House in, in some ways, right? He's yeah. like smart ass, probably smarter than the other people in the house. Yeah. Uh, and he's got the hots for Karen Allen, which who wouldn't. Yeah. Perpetual, um, perpetual smirk. Yeah. 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 Um, but here he's, uh, uh, I was talking with a friend after the movie who was like, uh, something like that. That's not just like, that's not just the most charming Peter Rieger has ever been. Like, I'm not sure anyone has ever been as charming as Peter Rieger is in crossing Delancey. Um, and, uh, I, I really, this movie just bowled me over. Um, it's, it's also so very specific to the sort of, um, uh, eighties lower East side 
uh, Jewish neighborhood that yeah. most of it takes place in. And it's very important that Amy Irving's character doesn't live there. She comes there to visit her booby, mm-hmm. but she lives um, on the Upper West Side where her bookstore is. And it, like, it's um, the idea that... Uh, it, it's very much a New York movie. I, mean, I, I feel the way. I've only been in New York once mm-hmm. in my life, so I can't say for sure if it's a good New York movie, but it feels like a movie that loves New York and not in the patronizing way that they came together and made fun of. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it does seem like a very specific movie that recognizes that what is in square mileage, not that much of a distance. It's one, Manhattan's one island. The mm-hmm. idea that she lives in the Upper West Side and they live in the Lower East Side, it's not that far apart, but it's... Sim- symbolically yeah. it shows that she's left this sort of traditional life behind and that maybe her reticence to see Peter Riegert as an, as a romantic option has, it isn't just about that. She's got the hots for your own crabby. Right. It's that he also represents something that she feels that she's escaped from. Yeah. And it's great. And it's very funny crossing Delancey, man, check it out. It is so good. Uh, and I will say that uh, you used a, a word uh, a few times there that I feel like you and I have had this conversation recently, but I would like to devote an episode to it at some uh-huh. point, which is adult. Yeah. The idea of like movies for adults, because there have been times in the past when I've talked to people that this sounds super shitty. This is like the second time I've done this. People that aren't you and me. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah Normies. Sure. <laughs> um <laughs> And I've used the term adult. I was like, oh, that's very adult. And the person, they're not dumb or anything, but just like culturally, if you refer to a movie or any kind of it, it's like, oh, it's very adult. Like usually means like, oh, it's like sexually explicit. It's like, no, I mean, maybe, but that's not all. That's <laughs> yeah. not the only thing. It's, it just has more of like a, a clear eyed view of the yeah. world and yeah. an understanding of what may or may not be dire you know it's how i felt about uh enough said which i which yeah. i loved and even that had some scheming in it uh, yeah. but the but the the way the characters oh that's right i was uh i was talking to my students about jackie brown and i said that okay. i think it's probably the most adult film that he has made um probably, that's probably true yeah. partially because of the the central romance between these two middle-aged characters yeah. you know um Okay. Uh, all right. And uh, next up, I went from watching a great movie to a terrible movie, a movie oh, that I knew was going to be terrible. It's that's its reputation. Uh, 1956's The Mole People, which okay. is a, a movie, it's an MST3K movie. Yeah. This uh, Blu-ray from Shout Factory includes the MST3K episode oh, as okay. a special feature. So yes, I watched. I technically watched The Mole People twice because I watched <laughs> yeah, the yeah. movie and then immediately watched the. But the MST3K is. Uh, standard definition um you know uh uh four by three whereas the movie itself is an mm-hmm. hd transfer um available to watch in either 185 or two to one which i tried to look up what the original this is i mean here's an issue in, in an episode we've talked about doing we should do which is aspect ratios yeah because uh i think those of us who sort of came of age as film fans around the dvd era have gotten it into our heads that each movie has a correct aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. But you go back to a certain time period, that's not necessarily true. You know, movies would be shot because not every theater had the plates to right. do 185. Right. So movies would be shot, okay, we're shooting this 185, but it's got to be 133 safe, Academy mm-hmm. safe or whatever. So that's why you get, the, like, I think um, if you read, um, 
what is it? Home theater forum is, I think is the website. Don't read it because you will go down a rabbit hole and you find people that you will, uh, find yourself getting angry at and feeling sad for, and then feeling sad for yourself for caring <laughs> enough to get angry at them. Yeah. But, uh, if you look at the discussion on what the original aspect ratio of Marty is, Oh, there are pages and pages of arguing <laughs> about whether or not that's one eight five or, or, or one three three. Um, anyway, but two to one is super scope, which is what yeah. invasion of the body snatchers I think was, was in, which is weird. The two to one. Is it really? Uh, well, I think that's what it was shot. But again, that time, right. It was probably shot safe for one eight five. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, and so this one's available in one eight five or two to one, two to one weirdly has come back mm-hmm. in the, in the age of prestige streaming shows, mm-hmm. because now everything's 16 by nine, like one seven, eight, because right. that's what TVs are now. So in order to give TV shows some prestige, a little bit of letterboxing two to one has come back. House of cards brought it back, but now all the prestige like Netflix shows mm. and, and who's, I think handmaid's tale is two to one. Um, it's two to one is back because subconsciously I think people think letterboxing is classy. <laughs> Certain types of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. The director's cup. <laughs> Google that. See if you can figure out what we're talking about anyway. Um, so yeah, the mole people, I feel like everything I just said about aspect ratios is more interesting than the mole people. Yeah. Uh, it's a really dumb movie. It starts with a professor who is a professor of English literature, giving a lecture about the earth's core and different theories about what might be under the earth's core. It's a weirdly fascinating scene, but also like uh, <laughs> already, already I feel like yeah. they're off base. And then you've got a long, it's, you've got an archeological dig or you've got a lot of <laughs> characters who are archeologists making archeology span jokes. <laughs> which I'm sure are bad, but then, uh, um, it has one of the, one of the, I hadn't, I had not yet watched the MST3K episode. And as soon as someone said this, I was like, Oh, I can't wait to see what they say in the MST3K. They find this like rune with like, um, or the stone with like runes on it, like, mm-hmm. uh, hieroglyphs or whatever. Right. Um, they uncover it and they're like, but at this layer of sediment, that's not possible. And the other one goes, not probable in archeology. span All things are possible. <laughs> uh, and in the, in the MSTDK, they just went, not really, uh, which is pretty funny. Um, and then, yeah, they get swallowed up by the ground. And they find an underground civilization that's still living sort of, uh, uh, you know, ancient Egypt type mm-hmm. of, uh, or Sumerian, ancient Sumerian, uh, culture. And then certain people have, uh, I guess evolved and maybe devolved into mole people who mm. uh, threaten the Sumerians, but then once captured, they treat the mole people as slaves. So now the uh, uh, handsome, time, brainy, time white archaeologist, yes, yeah, very time machine. I thought okay. about time machine. Yeah, uh, has to uh, teach the Sumerians uh, about civilized ways and free the mole people. <laughs> really bad. Yeah, hour and eighteen minutes. <laughs> Well, that's something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. What'd you watch? <laughs> all right. This is a rewatch for me. Uh, in my, in one of my classes, uh, my, fr- my, it's not my friend. I was going to say it's, it's interesting. If he had been a guest on this show, I'd say our friend, but he wasn't, he was only a guest on more than one lesson. So I was going to say my friend, I'm like, Oh, that sounds wrong. We're not friends. So friend of more than one lesson, friend of more than one lesson, Paul Walter Hauser, uh, came and spoke to my class. Cool. Um, and 
ordered pizza for everybody uh, <laughs> because oh, by his own admission, he wants bitch. to be seen as cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so knowing that he was going to come and talk to the class, uh, I, I showed I, Tanya to uh-huh. talk about acting specifically. Um, and you may recall, I was not a huge fan of it when it, uh, when I first watched it a couple years ago, I guess. Yeah. I guess a year ago it was only last year. Um, or rather 2017. And in watching it again, I'm torn because I do think that all the actors are doing, doing great work. And I think that the tone of the film, which is just as much, if not more comedy than it is drama, um, is something that I enjoy, but there are times when I just feel, you know, the characters are dealing with, physical abuse and it's incredibly normalized and it's it's not just a husband beating on a on a wife it's also a mother beating on Mm -hmm. a dog like it's just it is a part of this world and one that the characters put up with but also don't put up with like it's just this like the fact of it is something that i found deeply disturbing and the film also seems to find it disturbing to to a point um but also seems to also seems to find it kind of amusing at times. Like again, it's, it's a film that nobody ever, I don't think the characters ever use the term white trash or rather other people refer to them that mm-hmm. way. And, and we're meant to see those characters as, as mean and, yeah. and bad people. Um, but at the same time, the, the humor of the film <clears throat> does seem rooted in the idea of, can you believe how these people treat each other? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm torn on that because I do feel like the, the way the humor is played out sometimes cheapens the very difficult lives that these characters are living. That said, it is also just a ridiculous story uh, filled with people making ridiculous, stupid choices. And you have to, and you have to laugh. Yeah. Like it's, you cannot help it. Um, you know, when talking, uh, cause I did, cause you know, after the movie, like Paul and I sat down and, and in front of the class and I asked him questions and I opened it up to the classroom. And, uh, one of the things that I was talking about in my, you know, in my lecture before we started the movie and before Paul showed up is that, you know, an actor, can give a very different type of performance based on, am I in a comedy? Am I in a drama? Am I in a horror movie? You know? Mm-hmm. And so when I was talking to Paul about it, he goes, well, he goes, I think I'm, I think I'm the guy I'm playing. There's only one way you can play him. Like the film could be a straight up comedy or a straight up drama. That performance is going to be about the same because he was so deluded right. and yeah. just so over the top crazy um but at the same time paul still said that he goes you know i he said i may not have gone as far as he has but there are times when i've wanted he goes there was a time when i was just doing menial jobs saying i'm gonna be an actor someday and everyone undoubtedly thought i was deluded i did um and so uh so he was just talking about like trying to find a level of commonality between him and the character and i think that's why when I watch the movie, I think the, the actors come away pretty, pretty, uh, pretty squeaky clean. In my opinion, I I don't think, I don't think they judge their characters. I think they commit to their characters. I think it's the, the tone, the larger tone of the film that I occasionally take issue with. I still enjoyed it though. 
I, yeah, I, I remember liking it a lot. Uh, all right, next up, I watched a movie I've been meaning to get to for a while, the original 1977 The Hills Have Eyes, directed by okay. Wes Craven. Have you seen it? No. I think I put it off for a while because I have seen The Last House on the Left, and right. I don't like it. Um, and uh, I thought this was going to be just sort of more of the same. Um, but this does seem a mov- like a movie that has a little bit more humanity to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still has awful things happening to people and part of the dark joke of the, and definitely, Oh yeah, the, it has humor in it, but it definitely balances the humor and the horror much better than the last house on the left, which right. feels like, uh, it feels psychopathic the way that it has big, broad slapstick humor yeah. in between these incredibly, uh, disturbing, uh, sequences. The Hells Have Eyes balances it better, but part of one of the jokes of the movie is that the human, the regular normal humans being hunted by these feral cannibal people uh, in the uh, Southwest um, are not great people themselves, mm-hmm. uh, especially the the older the um, the the mother and father of the uh, of the clan. Um, but still, the movie is it it feels for its characters including the the crazy cannibal clan in some in some ways you a part of it uh, uh, there is a realization that like yeah maybe the the one guy who's like the boss of the clan is pure evil the rest of them were just like raised like this right you know um uh i'm not sure what else uh to say uh about it some um beautiful um cinematography uh mm. you know sun drenched it, it, I mean, it's really it's it has so much in common with the texas chainsaw massacre and can't right. hold a candle to that but um i tend to respond to movies uh about people not from the rural parts of the world yeah <laughs> you know uh is why i like this i like texas chainsaw massacre i like deliverance uh because they confirm all my fears uh, about the places in between the cities in america um uh anyway uh yeah so it and also has again not to the level of texas chainsaw massacre which has one of the greatest endings of any movie ever oh yeah but hills of eyes has a great ending okay uh and, and then next i watched a oh a movie that comes out this weekend that um or it comes out in select markets on IMAX theaters this weekend. I think open wide next week. Opens wide next week is a documentary called Apollo Eleven. I kept seeing all those invites. I really wanted to make it. Yeah. It looked really interesting to me, but I wasn't able to. Um uh yeah. Uh it it's uh, a documentary about the Apollo 11 mission, which was the mission to the moon, the mission dramatized in the final act of first man just mm-hmm. a few months ago. Um, and it is made almost, it is constructed pretty much entirely from footage from the time NASA mm-hmm. documented on 65 millimeter. So much of this. And then some of the stuff is, um, not 65, you know, there's like some video stuff and some still photos and there's a little bit of new, animation just to sort of illustrate because when you're when they're way out in space the only cameras are inside you can't really see what the right. spaceship is doing so just to illustrate here's what michael collins had to do at this point to drop the limb onto the you know and pick up the limb or whatever you know so there's a little bit of very rudimentary animation but it doesn't 
uh, break the spell or intrude, uh, really. Basically, the movie is just entirely um, uh, footage from the time and audio recorded at the time or news broadcasts from mm-hmm. the time. It, it doesn't have any modern-day reflection on, on what's happening. Uh, and, of course, I, th- I thought of First Man uh, a number of times, but... I I feel like, and it's weird that it didn't occur to me before, but this is the first movie about the moon landing or really maybe about that era of the space program that isn't first and foremost about the astronauts and the NASA technicians. It is about them, but it also, they shot a lot of footage of like the crowds who came to watch the launch mm-hmm. and there's other stuff. There's some really fascinating stuff that never occurred to me before of just like guys in mission control, listening to news reports about Vietnam on the radio, like that's mm. what's going on. And then there's a part it becomes kind of a dark joke where, you know, the nation's eyes are turned toward the Apollo 11 mission. But during the time they were in this in space is when the, um, Ted Kennedy, Mary Joe Kopechny thing happened. Interesting. And so there's a part where, Mission Control is talking to the astronauts about how, like, yeah, that, uh, I don't know if you guys, if anyone has told you yet about this Ted Kennedy thing, but uh, that's kind of taken over the news right now. Um, it's, it's weird to think about, like, yeah. to, to contextualize. And I think um, the movie also makes you realize that the team of the, the people you've seen played time and time again, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, uh, Jim Lovell shows up, you know, all these people, they're not the only people like, yeah, huge numbers of people had to be involved down to the movie makes you think about things like who built the models that they're using, you yeah. know? And the fact that like, um, they have to, to get the, the rocket out to the launch pad, they had to put on an enormous vehicle with treads and drive yeah. it out there. And you think, Someone's driving that. Someone had to put gas in it. Like so many people. And then you extrapolate that even further to the crowds. And you think about like, this is a taxpayer funded thing. This is an American, like, uh, I found myself thinking about the bullshit non-controversy about first man. Do you remember? Yeah. Which I don't understand how that, like the flag is so clear in two separate shots. It's not like incidental. Uh, you talked earlier about when there's a flag in a shot, yeah. uh, it's on purpose. It first man does not cheat away from showing you the flag on the moon. I don't understand. But, um, I did think, well, if someone wants to see this mission in patriotic American terms, this movie will do it for them in a way that I don't think is, um, you know, uh, dumb or superficial the way, um, frankly, too much patriotism is presented uh, in a lot of ways. This is a movie that really, I think, uh, is very democratic in what it presents about the mission and what it meant to to Americans, what it meant to earth. There's a way to earn patriotism, Uh like, and by showing like, Hey, this was taxpayer funded. So everybody, had a hand in it yeah. in their own way, Everybody kicked in. whether they wanted to or not. Uh, but also the idea that like, this is not just happenstance like, Oh, this happened and it, and it benefited us. God bless America. No, like everybody worked really hard to yeah. make it happen. You know, take that Brezhnev. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought uh, I was really blown away by it. And it's definitely, if you do have a chance to see it, 
in IMAX, which uh, I'm not sure how long that'll last. Yeah. Uh, it's worth doing. I'll use this to say, and neither one, because I, I saw Climax back at uh, TIFF. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I'm, I normally scoff at the people who are like, no, you have to see this movie in a theater because it's kind of like elitist and old fashioned in some yeah. ways. Um, uh, but I will say Climax is a movie that deserves to be enjoyed as loud as you can possibly enjoy okay. it. Okay. And I'm not sure outside of a theater, unless you have a great sound system and no near neighbors, there might not be a way to see climax at full volume. Like you mm-hmm. should, like I got to see it at the midnight showing uh midnight premiere at, at TIFF. Um, so I will recommend if you can get out to a theater and spend your money to see climax, if you're interested in climax, it's also fucked up and it's going to disturb you too, but, uh, it's kind of a party too. So see it loud and see Apollo 11 big if you can. Okay. All right. Uh, I think you have another one. No, you should have one. Oh, okay. And then I have two and then you have a final one. Okay. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I saw the Lego movie two, the second part and it was, I didn't, I didn't love the first Lego movie as much as some people. I liked it a lot. Um, and this one feels like a, a perfectly fine sequel. One that, uh, it's tough because when you watch the first one and, and then you realize what the conceit is, uh, who these characters are and the world that they inhabit. And then the larger world that is influencing what they're doing. Um, once you realize it, it's not necessarily a twist, but it definitely any movie that any subsequent movie that takes place in this Lego world, you cannot help but then keep those revelations in mind. Mm. And from the word go, you're thinking, okay, what is actually happening? Like, here's what the, here's what's happening for the characters, but what does this mean in a larger Mm -hmm. sense? You know, you you cannot help but think past it, which I do think lowers the stakes a little bit. Um, and so that is unfortunate. But I do. I'm also a grown up and I'd be curious to know what a what a kid might think of it. I think they would probably enjoy it. And I do think that um, I think Scott said this on Letterboxd and I and I would agree that I, I think that the 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 message of the film is something that is definitely aimed towards younger uh, audiences. Whereas I think the message of the first film probably was more for, for us. Hmm. Um, that said, the, the humor is, is amusing. Timothy, uh, sorry, Tiffany, uh, Haddish, uh, plays the, the antagonist, okay. uh, and she has her introductory song, uh, is she just talks about all the different ways that she's not evil. Um, and it's very, very funny because they just keep building on it. Um, and uh, and the animation is is a lot of fun as well, and often quite creative. Uh, but yeah, overall, it was a, a perfectly fine experience, but one that, again, because of the first film, I just don't know if any any subsequent film would hmm. w- would work for me. But do you, so. Does that apply to like the Lego Batman no, movie as well? It does not. Okay, because is that supposed to be in the same universe? I mean, it's the same Batman. It's the right? same Batman. I think it's just supposed to be like this. I don't know, like okay. Solo, a Star Wars story or something like that. Okay. Um, no, it does. It, it does not apply to that. And I didn't see. What is it? Ninjago. Ninjago. I no, didn't, I didn't see, see that either. 
Uh, all right. Um, I watched a movie that I've been meaning to get around to for a while um, because it is the uh, the uh, reunion of uh, two great actors. Uh, who I feel like you're being sarcastic. No, no, they are okay. actually actors that I love uh, and have appeared in a number of films together. Um, but this is the first time since 1992 that they played love interests together. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Keanu Reeves and Ronan Ryder in Destination Wedding. Oh, okay. Which, have you heard of this? I've heard of it, yes. Okay, do you know what the uh, conceit of the movie is? I do not. So it's, they go to a destination wedding, uh, shot on location in Paso Robles, uh, which is a place that I've been uh, multiple times and I love. And actually, it was a weird part. They're showing like these establishing shots of like the town square mm-hmm. in Paso Robles and they show like the movie theater. And my mind immediately went, I saw John Wick 2 there. <laughs> hey, and now can Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so uh, they go to a destination wedding. It's um, Ken Reeves' character's brother, is also one of the writer's character's ex-girlfriend. She's not really over it, but she's decided to go and for closure or whatever. Um, but the conceit of the movie is that they are the only two with speaking roles in the entire movie. So they, because they're basically like, they keep being paired with each other because basically they're the two people that nobody likes hmm. in the movie. And so they're like at the rehearsal dinner, at the wedding, at the brunch or whatever, they keep end up being sat next to each other. So the, the movie it doesn't have any it has very few wide shots it also has very few close-ups it basically unfolds almost entirely in two shots huh of the it, and it's just Keanu Reeves and Ronan Ryder talking you hear some like peas and carrots wallet type yeah, yeah. stuff going on at the wedding and then there are occasionally like um, PA announcements or news reports that you hear mm-hmm. but as far as on-screen speaking roles it's just these two for the entire 90 minutes um, does that feel does that feel strained at any point or does it work? Uh, I think the movie makes pretty clear early on because it's also a movie that is, they're very talky people. It feels very stagey from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think making those aesthetic choices makes it clear to the audience. Like, no, this is what this is. We're not trying to cheat and make it seem like this is a real thing. Okay. It's okay for this to be stagey. So it it didn't take me out of it at all because it's consistent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but the the thing I haven't really gotten into, uh, the real joke of the movie is that both these characters suck as people. Okay, not, not as characters. I mean, as people, you wouldn't. There's a reason no one is talking to them. Yeah. They're terrible, and I really respected the movie for not making them like movie terrible, like Krusty Bob and I. <laughs> no, they're shallow jerks. Yeah, they're shallow. They're. Um, uh, the movie actually has a subtitle. It's Destination Wedding or A Narcissist Can't Die Because Then the Entire World Would End. <laughs> that's, nice. the, that's the full title of the movie. I, I might be getting a few words wrong there. because, But um, uh, yeah, they're really terrible people. And uh, they don't stop being terrible. They just talk to each other because... And there ends up being a weird sort of low-level hopefulness to the idea that like, Hey, maybe these two suck just the right amount for each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the movie. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually very funny. Um, we've talked because you know, we're doing a counter Reeves commentary action. I've, I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you and I talked about doing a Keanu Reeves comedy one, which would mm-hmm. be parenthood, both the bill and Ted's. And you said much to do about nothing. I feel like we could swap out maybe parenthood because that's not a leading role. Maybe we could do destination wedding, but I maybe parent had, what's that? Maybe we, maybe t- we take out one of the bill and Ted's. 
that, that I don't know if I can. Is I don't know if we can breaker? lose a, a Bill and Ted. That, and uh-huh. Those are also going to move units. You know, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why am uh, I clinging to much ado about nothing? For God's sake. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. There. I mean, there's some of the lines are like because uh, his. So his mother's been married. Uh, the mother of Ken Reeves' character and the groom has been married like three times. And, um, he talks about how she, ha- she hated all of her husbands. And then one writer's like, then why did she keep all of their last names? And Ken Reeves is like, uh, she thinks the hyphens make her seem aristocratic. Plus she gets all her mail that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good, good lines. Oh yeah. yeah. I forgot I have another movie. You do. Um, uh, this is a movie that's about to come out uh, in a couple weeks. Um, it's called the Mustang and it is, uh, Matthias Shainert's, um, Bruce Dern, Jason Mitchell, um, I feel like it's another, uh, name actor. Oh, Connie Britton has a couple of, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of scenes in it and it is the movie. It's the story itself is fictionalized, but it's based on a real program. So in America, there are still like a hundred thousand or so like wild horses hmm. that just live in America. And, uh, in certain, there are six States. i it says it at the end of the movie. I can't remember. It's California, Wyoming, Nevada, and I don't know, Colorado, a couple others. Um, there are programs where they, the wildlife, whatever department or whatever rounds up horses, they take them to a prison and then prisoners as part of a rehabilitation program, both mm-hmm. of them and the horses train the horses. And then they're, um, sold at auction mostly to local law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, and those funds go back into land, the you know wildlife and land management and and stuff and so matthias shanards plays a guy who's been in prison a dozen years who uh uh connie britain uh is like the prison psychologist who thinks that this program might be right for for him and then he uh i don't know he becomes friends with the horse mm-hmm. and uh um there's a uh, the movie's not perfect it kind of it kind of like fighting with my family does it. You can write the movie from right. where we like in, in terms of the plot points. I, based on what I've told you, you know how this movie goes for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, but I think the movie succeeds by not being overly sentimental at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it, it, it allows this, the, you know, the beauty of these horses and the strength of Matthias Schoenert's performance and Jason Mitchell's who plays Jason Mitchell is the prisoner who's been doing this program the longest. So he's sort of like the head prisoner and the Bruce Stern's the guy who runs the program. Um, uh, and based on the strength of these performances, um, you, you get everything you need without like sweeping music or like, yeah. you, you know, uh, anything overly, overly saccharine. It's, I, I think it's a, um, it is a very it's the best execution i could imagine of a movie this predictable all right uh okay so one more right just me uh yes okay uh this is a rewatch um a film that i reviewed for the site a few years ago and watched it in class this week it is akira kurosawa's the hidden fortress um have you seen i've it? never seen that one it is uh, pretty great. Um, not my favorite of his. Um, I think my favorite is probably Rashomon, followed very closely by Throne of Blood. But I think I do enjoy it more than Seven Samurai. And the thing that I'll that I'll say is that just about Kurosawa in general, 
it's just he, his films in many ways are very straightforward. Um, Unless he's doing something like Throne of Blood, which is his uh, adaptation of Macbeth. And so there's kind of a supernatural quality. But his films are very straightforward. um, And they feel so right. It's hard to analyze them, I find. I mean, yes, you can analyze them technically. But the way he puts an action sequence together, you're just like, yeah, that is the way that should be put together. I can't imagine anybody wanting to do it any other way because this is the way that works. And I don't mean to say to suggest that he's not brilliant. It's just, he just seemed admittedly. I mean, he made way more films than I have seen uh, of his, but uh, those that I have, it's just like, he's just one of those directors that seem to inherently and instinctively understand the way you make movies. Um, his films feel remarkably modern in the way they unfold and the way that sequences are edited. Um, you know, cause along with the students, I've also been watching these older films and mm-hmm. watching the progression of them. And then to jump into this one, it's like, okay, I feel like, and I don't mean to say this in a, in a sense that I'm like refreshed or anything or excited, but like, it's like, okay, now I feel like we are really in the modern age. I feel about Kurosawa the way I feel about Eisenstein. We're like someone who just, everybody was doing something over here. And then he's like, uh, I think I'm going to accept his stuff was experimental, but the experimental seemed to demonstrate an inherent understanding of what film could be. And in the same way, like Kurosawa is just one of those directors like Hitchcock to me, who, or as I'm sure Kurosawa himself would say, like John Ford, um, who just knows, just knows what film is and then proceeded to define it. 